I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. What made you go to Save With Conrad in the first place? So listening to the podcast and you know hearing how Conrad talked about about it, I said, you know, let me jump on the website and just throw it in there. I knew I needed to not deal with the bank directly. I needed to deal with an actual mortgage lender. And obviously familiarity with Conrad through the podcast drew me over to Save With Conrad. How was it working with Derek? Oh, it was awesome. Derek, Derek is uh, a really good dude. Um, he very quickly was able to get me um, not only approved, but approved in a range that I was going to want to live with. Um, I had, I think, my, my pre-approval and my pre-qual letters within an hour of talking to him. What was your favorite part about working with the team? Uh, the fact that you guys were able to, um, to meet kind of my expedited schedule, because from when I first talked to Derek to when I closed was a little bit less than two months. Would you recommend Stay with Conrad to a friend or a family member? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've actually recommended you guys out to people that work for me as well as um, friends as well as neighbors. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you, man? I'm good, brother. Corona-free, living life, uh, enjoying this little bit of uh, downtime. It's a weird, weird time. We're, we're, weird time, but you know we're making the most of it. Montana, uh, our daughter Montana, for those of you that don't know me well, um, got in from LA this past week. So, you know, we're just uh, we're making the best of a bad situation. I gotta ask, um, being quarantined in Wyoming is, is basically like just Tuesday, right? <laughs> well, it, you know, in some respects, um, this is a small town. Cody, Wyoming's only got about 10,000 people in it. Uh, the nearest, you know, city from here, if you want to call it a, a city is Billings, Montana, which is about a hundred miles north of here. And between here and there, there's a whole lot of cattle. <laughs> and mountains so you know you're, we're kind of isolated anyway and the lifestyle here is much different than it is you know in most cities and suburbs and things like that so in some respects it's no big deal because 
you know, people that live here tend to live here because they like to be isolated. They don't like big crowds. They don't like big cities and have learned, you know, to to trade off the conveniences that many people become dependent upon in a city or a suburb for, you know, the relative isolation and living out in the country and being a little bit uh, self-reliant. Um, so it, for many people here, it's not a big deal, but I got to tell you the truth. I, I drove through town yesterday to pick up some, uh, some things we needed from the hardware store and it was a little eerie to, you know, on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, it was 50 degrees here and sunny and, you know, one of the first really nice spring days we've had in a bit and to drive through town on a Saturday morning and see like six or eight cars, you know, uh, on the, uh, on the main street and, uh, you know, it's not because people are afraid necessarily, but nothing's open. You know, the, Cody, Wyoming, the city of Cody, uh, did the same thing a lot of people have done. A lot of city managers and, and politicians have done around the country. They just shut everything down. So a lot of the small restaurant owners, you know, people that I've known for 20, almost 30 years, some some longer, um, are really are really hurting. You know, they here's what's really weird about Cody and and – and I'm sure this is true in a lot of places, not not just Cody, Wyoming. But this is a town that, for the most part, 70 or 80 percent of the income in the revenue that small businesses um, take in throughout the course of the year happen over about a four or five month window, starting around the middle of May, first of May, generally, running through September, maybe October. In some cases, so you got four or five months to pay all of your bills, to pay all of your staff, to you know put some money in the bank, hopefully, and that window of opportunity is now closed for the most part. You know, people and people come from all over the world here. You know, when when the in, in the summertime, if you were to walk up and down Main Street, you know, Cody, Wyoming, or stop in one of the the local, you know bars or pubs and sit outside, you've got people from all over the world. It's kind of like a small version of the United Nations in the summertime because you know, Yellowstone National Park is a big damn deal. And people come from all over the world. But th- those people have all canceled their their reservations. Nobody's you know, nobody's got anything booked. And those that do have vacations booked, some, sometimes people come out here and, and they book a year in advance because once summer comes, it gets busy as hell here. Those people are all gone. So I'm really fearful for what's going to happen to a lot of my friends and people that I don't know in the community that have small businesses that de- depend on tourism because tourism for this year, in my opinion, if, if things turned around as well as we could hope for, I don't think we're going to see things getting back to normal till the end of the summer, first part of the fall. And that's probably optimistic. So it's, you know, we're immune, no pun intended, to, you know, the the ramifications of this crisis uh, in many respects because, like I said, m- most of us that live here choose to be we, – we've been self-isolating or social distancing, you know. That's why we moved here. Not a big deal. But the businesses are going to suffer, and that's sad to see. It is sad to see, and, and we hope everyone listening to this is safe and sound and I realize a lot of the things we enjoy have been canceled or postponed. 83 weeks is not going to be on that list. Uh, Eric is broadcasting from the comfort of his home and I am as well. We've been lucky enough to have little home studio rigs here. So we're going to keep cranking out new content for you every week. And 
we, uh, we appreciate you guys allowing us to come into your home and be a part of your little wrestling family. And, uh, everybody's saying it right now, but it's worth repeating together. We'll get through it and, uh, we can sort of rally together as a little wrestling community and, uh, and have fun here or make the most of it. And that's what we're going to do today with uncensored 2000. This is, uh, I believe the last pay-per-view, uh, that Eric missed before he's going to be back in the saddle in WCW, but it was worth revisiting. We sort of talked through a nitro that was, uh, building towards this pay-per-view and now here we are March 19th, the American airlines arena, Miami, Florida, and man, this is a different WCW than we've talked about a lot here on the show. It's a major pay-per-view with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair on top and an undercard with, with really big matches and lots of names. And there's 2,543 paying fans for $97,925 at the gate. Which is, which is actually less than ECW did for the pay-per-view they ran the prior week in, um, in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that there's a month where ECW ran a, a pay-per-view, uh, the, the same month that WCW did and, and WCW offered Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair on top and ECW drew more at the gate. That just, that doesn't seem like that should be. Well, you know, in, in watching this show to, to prep, you know, for, for this, uh, edition of 83 weeks and we'll, I don't want to go too far into it cause we'll cover it, you know, on a match per match basis as we go, but it was, I'll give you my overall impression. It wasn't bad. It was not a bad pay-per-view in, in some respects. It just, there were, there was no coherence. There was no, as near as I could tell not a lot of real story, you know, leading up to it. It was more of a, it, it, to me watching it now, I have to be fair. I want to be fair to the people that worked on the show, whether I like them or don't and all that crap. Um, I, you know, I didn't watch the nitros and the thunders leading up to this particular pay-per-view. So it's probably not fair for me to comment on the quality of the story and the buildup of the arc leading to this pay-per-view. But based on what I saw and what I heard, more importantly, and the references, you know, the callbacks to beats within a story that presumably happened, you know, in the weeks leading up to it, I didn't hear any of that. You know, there was a couple clips from Thunder and from, you know, Nitro week last week, week before that, you know, showing a high spotter, you know, a, a beat that was relevant to the reason why we were watching a match on a pay-per-view, but there was no, nothing, nothing tied it together. It was a spectacle. It, it was like, Oh, we don't need a story. We just need to have a crazy match. And there were a lot of, I thought decent matches here. Some good, some I really liked some that just felt like filler, but overall, you know, good, decent pay-per-view. Um, and I, again, I don't want to get into individual matches too much because we'll do that in a minute. But uh, my overall impression was, you know, if I had to give it a, uh, on a scale of one to ten, I would say my first impression was that it was a five and a half. But the business side of it, as you just pointed out, um, you know, to do under $100,000 for WCW pay-per-view during this era really reflects how much the audience disconnected from the product and you know you can look back and be a rocket scientist and list all of the reasons why because 
one might think they're smarter than everybody else. But I, I truly believe it's because there was no vision. There was no real story. Everything was a spectacle without a story. And I think the audience just, they don't get passionate about that. You, you have to have good story. I don't think that'll ever change. Yeah, it's weird because it does feel like there were certain things you could always count on, you know, from WCW. Like it was just a bankable. I mean, going back to the first time you did Flair and Hogan, it said every record there was. And, and that wasn't a hundred years before this. It was, you know, less than six years prior to this. And, you know, Sid Vicious and, and Jeff Jarrett for the for the WCW title is, is maybe not a major draw if you're a heritage WCW fan, but Sid had main evented a couple of WrestleManias and staying in Lex Luger working in a match. I mean, you would think, well, man, that's, those are sort of WCW stalwarts. That'll be, that'll be something fans will be into. And then you've got old school too. Instead of dusty Rhodes versus Terry Funk, it's Dustin Rhodes versus Terry Funk. So you've got a lot of marquee bankable, recognizable wrestling superstars. I mean, if you made a, a Mount Rushmore of wrestling, you've got two or more names that are on that. I mean, uh, Terry Funk would be on mine and it's just really remarkable that this is where it is, that it's drawing. I, but, but you're kind of making my point in your own way. You know, you can put all those big names you want on the card, but if there's no story that's compelling, that drives it and makes it feel new. I mean, Flair and Hogan. Yeah. We went to the bank on that several times. Flair and Sting, you know, same thing has not in this pay-per-view obviously, but you know, there are certain matchups like, you know, Flair and Sting. You can keep going back to it as long as you don't do it too often, as long as you've got a good story that's compelling to support that matchup. But if you just throw it out there, banking on, you know, the attraction of Hogan and Flair with the Yavapai strap match, you're, you're kidding yourself. I mean, it's a little bit like putting, you know, Robert De Niro in a horseshit movie with no real good, you know, with no, no not a decent plot or a decent script. It, great. Robert De Niro's in the movie should be bankable, should be box office, but you put a guy like Robert De Niro in a, you know, a movie with a shitty script and a lousy director, um, and what are you going to get? You're going to get a box office bomb. And that's what, you know, we're looking at here. Not because the guys didn't work hard. None of that. It's just, there's no fucking story. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if it's 2000 or, you know, 20, or if it's, you know, 1975, the, you know, the, the things that stand out in the, in the audience's mind, those great matches and everybody's got a different opinion of a great match, by the way. And I don't, my opinion is my opinion. You know, you've got yours. Dave Meltzer has his, you know, Wade Keller has his and every wrestling fan has theirs and they may be similar in some respects. They may be different. There may be a combination, but for me personally, just me. Yeah. You've got to have great, you know, ring skill and you have to be able to execute, but man, if you've got a story, and we'll, 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 you know, we'll talk about more of that, about that in a minute. But if you've got a great story, I'll look past a sloppy finish. I'll look past, you know, a missed spot. I'll look past all that. If I'm really passionate about the story and I'm invested in the characters, if I'm not invested in the characters, if I'm not invested in the story, all those little flaws in the body of a match, all the stupid shit that you normally would go, oh yeah, yeah, but that was silly, but this is really good. All that goes out the window and all you're left with is, eh, that was stupid shit. Or at the very 
best, it was like, eh, it was all right. Flair and Hogan, you have a Pistrat match. It wasn't horrible. It's what you'd expect. But it certainly didn't have the buildup in the story that it needed to make it feel fresh. Let's talk about that for a minute because I, I do, you know, you said, hey, the story. But I, I wonder if it's maybe, and maybe I'm overreaching here, but when you've got this small of an appetite for a pay-per-view with these names and this list of talent it almost feels like you've lost the the confidence of the wrestling fans like where once upon a time they trusted you to deliver big matches and great stories and it'd be very entertaining it does feel like for whatever reason you know we've heard a lot these last several weeks about investor confidence on wall street and maybe that's one of the reasons that it's been all over the place with the dow jones but sort of fan confidence in this product, it's, it's probably taken a nosedive here. Has it not? Oh no, it has. It definitely has. And it didn't happen overnight, by the way, it had been, it's, it started happening, you know, in late 1998, uh, very late 1998. And it really started to accelerate, um, in, in terms of, you know, the fans leaving the product and becoming disenfranchised, if you will. Uh, it really started in the spring of 99 and, and, and it just started getting progressively worse. Um, there was a guy, I don't know if I've ever shared this here before. And, and I actually, I just had lunch with him in LA a couple of weeks ago. His name is Gary Consoline. Gary used to be, I'm sure you recognize the name. Gary used to be the executive producer for the tonight show, which Jay Leno. Uh, and he's also done a, a lot of other late night stuff. He was, you know, on the ground floor and, you know, helped create Access Hollywood back in the day and very knowledgeable guy. Uh, and is still today producing a lot of, of great television. And around 98, when things were still going pretty good for us, actually, no, it might have been earlier. Things were going really good for us. And I, I went to the NBC studios in, in Burbank and had a meeting with, with Gary. Uh, and Gary said something to me, he said a number of things to me that really have always stuck with me. And one of the things that he said to me that still resonates to this day is that the audience votes with their remote. And once they vote against you, it's really hard to get them back. It's because you're, you're in such a hole that once to your point, Conrad, once you've lost the audience's confidence, and they no longer believe you're going to entertain them and they make the choice to go somewhere else, it's harder to get them back than it was to get them the first time. Yeah. Meaning, you know, like with Nitro, you know, and some of it, like some of it was good luck. Some of it was great ideas. Some of it was great talent. Some of it, you know, some of it, a lot of it was just timing, right? Doing something different that had never been done before. Reinventing the way that wrestling was presented to the audience. Uh, you know, I know I sound like I'm, you know, patting myself on the back here and, and, and maybe in some ways I am. Don't really care. But it's true. Nitro changed the industry, and we're seeing the benefits of that change or the, the manifestation of those changes to this very day. They've stuck. WWE followed suit. You know, we're seeing a lot. You know, Tony Khan can say whatever he wants about WCW, but my God, <laughs> I mean, if, if they're not kind of trying to follow, trying, I emphasize trying, trying to follow the formula that made Nitro successful, I don't know what else they're doing. Um, but th 
when we did it first, it was a, it was a massive change in, in the way the audience, why the audience went from 2 million people a week or 3 million people a week to 8 or 9 or 10 million people a week at, at its peak. We brought in a whole new generation of fans that were either disenfranchised with the product and hadn't watched it in 10 or 20 years or, in many cases, brand new fans that had never followed professional wrestling. Because it was new, it was different, it was not what you expected from the product. Now, is is you know, much as I'm you know tearing cartilage and pulling ligaments, patting myself on the back. Fact of the matter is, under my watch, and certainly it was accelerated under other people's watches, we lost that. We 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 deviated from the formula too much, or we didn't we didn't do enough things right to hold that audience and. At the same period of time that we kind of took our hands off the wheel and, you know, we're looking in the backseat playing with the kids and not paying attention to the road in terms of, you know, managing, driving, creating a WCW or for Nitro, you know, the WWE comes along and broadsides us, you know, at 80 miles an hour with a semi truck called, you know, the Attitude Era, where they took what we created and turned up the volume. They were doing it better than we did. The formula that really launched Nitro. And we got broadsided. Well, but when we got broadsided, the audience went, fuck that. We're not watching Nitro. We're going to go watch the semi-truck that just blew them out of the intersection. Getting that audience back next to impossible. Way harder than getting them in the first place. And, you know, probably going a long way around the block to make that point. But that, that's that's what I'm seeing here. To your point, yeah, we lost the audience. They no longer had confidence in us. We weren't going to deliver anything spectacular. We were no longer must-see TV. In 96 and 97 and 98, we were must-see TV because we were doing shit that was cool that nobody had ever seen before. We were surprising the audience. We were doing the unexpected. We were introducing new elements. We were shooting the show in a way that ne- it had never been shot before. We were taking the audience backstage and exposing them to – now, this is probably earlier, 95, 96 – but we had exposed them to elements of the backstage arena, and we told our story in parts of the arena that had never been exposed before. And they dug it because they feel like they, the audience felt like they were there. Well, fast forward a couple of years later, you've seen all that. You've done all that. How are you going to entertain me now? You know what I mean? So it's it's just an interesting thing to look back at and to try to analyze. And I hope I'm being objective. I'm sure I'm not, but I'm at least trying to be. But I think this is a perfect example of what Gary Considine, uh, my buddy from from uh, formerly with NBC, said is once the audience votes and they decide they no longer want to watch, getting them back is almost impossible. Well, I'll tell you, it's because uh, a lot of fans – you know, didn't think they were getting what they hoped for on, uh, on nitro and, and boost mobile gives you everything you can want in a wireless carrier. So you know exactly what you're getting and exactly what you're paying for, With no annual service contract boost mobile offers a range of unlimited data plans and the latest phones from top brands at affordable prices. Service plans already include taxes and fees, plus a mobile hotspot, unlimited music streaming, and so much more. I got to tell you, I am a, uh, I'm a big fan of this program, What we're talking about is stepping up with boost mobile and here's the deal. Smartphones are expensive, so don't force the family to wrestle over one phone, step up with boost mobile, and you'll get four free Samsung galaxy, a 20 phones. When you switch, let's go ahead and recap what we're talking about here. 
you're going to get four lines for just $25 per month per line with unlimited data. You're also going to get four free Samsung Galaxy A20 phones, perfect for the whole family. And of course, a super reliable, super fast nationwide network to keep you connected. Why would you not switch to Boost Mobile today? Get all of that right now. Let's recap four lines for just $25 per line per month, unlimited data. Four free Samsung Galaxy A20 phones, perfect for the whole family. And of course, the super reliable, super fast nationwide network to keep you connected. Make the switch right now. Step up with Boost Mobile and switch today. You'll be glad you did. This is a limited time offer while supplies last. New customers only. It requires port and activation from eligible carrier. One free device per line. Users using more than 35 gigs of data during a billing cycle may be deprioritized during times of network congestions. Offers and coverage not available everywhere. See boostmobile.com or retailer for full details. Such a big fan of this offer, Eric. And I don't know how they're making money with this $25 on a free phone with unlimited data. How's that possible? I don't know, man. It's, I keep, I, I keep, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in a telecommunications business, so, you know, it would be impossible for me to figure out anyway, but just on the surface of it, you know, two things occur to me. One is to kind of tie this into the situation we're in right now. I mean, you go into the supermarket, you go anywhere you want to go. Everybody's buying stuff up, stocking, hoarding, whatever you want to call it. But I think we're all, hopefully, I know Mrs. B and I are, um, kind of taking some inventory and be a little bit more judicious with what we buy and what we spend. And not that we're hoarding, but you, you, you want to be smart. And in the process of doing all that, you start looking at the little things that I'll speak for ourselves. We start looking at the little things that we do that, you, you know, when you're not really, when there's no reason to pay attention, you just go, go with the flow, right? You end up spending a lot of money. You don't have to spend. And, you know, it's nickel and dime, you know, when you look at it individually. But in the in the big scheme of things, it adds up to being a lot of money. And yeah. I think your telephone, you know, your cell phone charges is probably one of the biggest things that we all just say, okay, well, we got to do it, right? It is what it is. It's like a utility, it, it, like your electric bill. It is what it is. But it's not. You know, with Boost Mobile, you're getting an opportunity to not only have, you know, four lines, but you're getting unlimited data, but you're getting an opportunity to save a ton of money. How they do it, I'll never figure it out. Doesn't really matter to me. They're doing it. So they're doing it. You should be doing it. Save some money. Be smart. Conserve your bucks. You never know when you need some dry powder. You know what I mean? Step up with Boost Mobile. You'll be so glad you did. Let's talk about the, uh, how the show did on pay-per-view. It does a 1.3 buy rate. Only six hundred and five thousand dollars on pay per view. So that's before what? Yeah. Six hundred and five thousand in revenue on a pay per view? Yeah. Holy shit. That's like that's worse than nineteen ninety two revenue. It is horrible. That's horrible. Yeah. It's it's wow. it's no wonder that you're getting a call and that you're coming back because this thing has taken a nosedive. By comparison. Let's compare it to just one year prior to recap uncensored 2000, 97,000 at the gate, 600 grand on pay-per-view. Uh, there's 200, 2,543 fans in attendance one year prior uncensored 99 were uh, 15,930 fans. And we did a 0.77 buy rate for 3.69 million. 
Holy crap. So we went from 3.69 down to 600 grand. We lost over $3 million on one show from year to year. And that's really the way most businesses compare themselves. And they say, Hey, where were we this time last year? And so you can see sort of, you know, we need to appreciate where we are now, but we need a frame of reference for where we've been. So we can say, are we trending up? Are we trending down? Well, holy cow. We go from 15,930 fans down to just 2,543. It's unbelievable. Uh, and WCW's in a state of free fall. So your phone's going to ring. You're going to have an opportunity to come back in. And, uh, we're going to be talking about that in the coming month or so. This is the sixth and final uncensored pay-per-view. It started in 1995. Talk to me a little bit about, and you know, we've touched on this a little bit once before the original concept with uncensored and perhaps why it didn't become sort of a hallmark WCW event in the same way that maybe bash at the beach was or Starcade was, or Halloween havoc was what was, what was the goal with uncensored as a concept pay-per-view and, and why was it a mess? Uh, well, I, we'll start with the concept. Uh, that was the first part of your question. The concept, you know, with the uncensored was originally to be a pay-per-view that basically threw all of the rules and the framework of how matches took place and, and where and when and why and how, um, and threw it all out the window. One time a year where you would have, let's just call it anarchy, you know, from, from top to bottom, uh, on the pay-per-view. That's a very general broad way of describing it, but that hence the name uncensored, right? The, 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 the reason that it didn't work, there was, there was more than one, I'm sure, um, let's go back to the first one, you know, I, I, it, 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 it didn't have elements that were so much different than what you would see on nitro or what you would see in other pay-per-views that made it feel special. Rewind a bit, a little bit. One of the re, you know, when, when 93, 94, whatever it was, when, you know, I'm sitting in a room in my office and I'm counting pencils and I'm looking at numbers and Bill Bush is sitting across from me. And I, I'm not exaggerating here. I, I spent the majority of my day with Bill in, in the early part of my management of WCW, really, really grinding the numbers you know, d- despite the, the, the urban narrative to the contrary. And yes, we spent a lot of money. I spent a lot of money on talent, but bad, 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 kiss and all that other shit. Yes. Yes. Well, we were making three or $400 million a year at the time. So it's all kind of fucking relative. But in the beginning, when I first took over, it was an austerity strategy. We, we were scrimping everywhere we could. We were trying to make our, we were trying to balance our numbers. We were cutting costs every way we possibly could. We've cut, we've, we've covered all that. But one of the things that we could do back then was increase revenue by increasing the number of pay-per-views, which we did. We went from four to five to six to eight to 10 to 12, whatever, whatever that trajectory was. I don't remember it off the top of my head. But it was, and and WWF at the time did, was doing much the same thing because they were in the same boat. They they were losing their ass. They their their numbers were going down. Their ratings were soft at best. Um, but they started at when we started adding pay per views. They started adding pay per views, and it was important in my mind. Still is to this day. I would do it over again, only I would do it better because I'm smarter. 
having had the experience, um, is making each one of those pay-per-views feel as unique and different as we possibly could. Because otherwise, it's just a three-hour TV show that we're asking you to pay $39 for because it doesn't have commercials. That's all it is. If you don't find a way to give each pay-per-view a personality of its own, each pay-per-view should be its own character if, if you're doing it right. You know, Royal Rumble is a character. Yeah. Yes, it's the name of a pay-per-view, but it's a character on the WWE roster. And it comes around once a year and it shows up. WrestleMania is the character of all characters in, in the, the WWE you know, pay-per-view um, schedule. Uh, and there's more. And WCW didn't have that. Yes, we had, you know, Starcade, but that was the big one. Yay, Starcade's the big one. But it didn't have a personality. It was a big pay-per-view, but it didn't have a personality. We didn't have to fuck with Starcade because it had its own brand because it had been around for a while. Um, but the new pay-per-views that we were adding, Uncensored being one of them, you know, we were trying to give it its own character. And, and we did a bad job. You know, because we didn't differentiate it. It wasn't that much different than what the audience was able to see across any of our other platform, any of our other shows. Not different enough, right? So that's, I think that's probably the reason it fell apart was just not figuring out and being disciplined enough to stick with your plan, even if it didn't work exactly the way you wanted it to in the beginning, even if it created some ripple effect in your other shows and you, you, you told talent, no, you can't, you, you can't have that finish or you can't use those garbage cans or you can't bring out a fucking fire extinguisher. You can't do all the shit you want to do on a television show because we have to save that for uncensored. So that uncensored feels different. We didn't do that. We weren't disciplined enough in that. And as a result, uncensored was eh, not bad, just not great. Didn't have a personality and never really, never really caught on. I'm glad you, talked about that because the personality of the pay-per-view is something that I feel like a lot of fans miss, you know, believe it or not, one of the most frequent questions we get across my podcasts are fans tweeting about, man, I really miss the different sets from the pay-per-views and that's, you know, the set is is a small piece, but certainly uh, an important piece of the personality of a pay-per-view. And the big complaint is, well, it feels like everything with the WWE these days is sort of same, same uh, that they don't have different personalities. They all feel very, very similar. Do you think that has hurt WWE and in, in their pay-per-view efforts? And obviously it's a different time and now it's on the network and maybe that's not as big of a deal, but with all the rumor and innuendo that Vince is perhaps looking to offload some of that pay-per-view business to a major player, whether it's ESPN or someone like that. Um, will that be a challenge for him moving forward? Because the pay-per-views these days don't really have different personalities. I think so. I, I, and it's more than that. Um, it's all of that. And then some, I, again, um, I'm going to be careful what I say here. So it's not kind of inside knowledge that I've was able to gain over of the few months that I was there, but I, let me figure out how to say this without getting myself in trouble. Back in the late 90s, when I was involved, for both WWE and WCW, pay-per-view was at a minimum 25% of your revenue. 
it was, as I've discussed before, you know, it, wrestling, the, the sports entertainment, professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it, when it's firing on all eight cylinders, let's call it 12 cylinders. Let's think Maybach. Um, when, it, when it's firing on all cylinders and purring and things are running flawlessly, generally speaking, and again, this is back in the 90s now, 25% of your revenue would come from ticket sales. 25% of your revenue would come from uh, your, your television. 25% of your revenue would come from licensing and, 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 and merchandising. And then what did I leave out? It was 25, 25. So you got television, pay-per-view, um, licensing and merchandising, and ticket sales. Those are your four legs on your stool, right? I think in today's environment, that number has changed dramatically. Yeah. Part of it is because of, you know, streaming and technology and other revenue opportunities, by the way, that aren't bad. But the, the, the model for sports entertainment has changed so drastically over the last 10 or 15 years that pay-per-view is just not the significant part of the business that it once was. Other things are becoming more significant. Other things are becoming more important. And I think as a result, a couple of things have happened. One is there's less emphasis on story. Why? Because there's less emphasis on the pay-per-view. Instead of, you know, back in the day when, uh, let's just go back to the period of time where I was active in the business. You know, you had a pay-per-view every month. So the formula was pretty simple. Act one, act two, act three. Act one, act two, and the first half of act three played out on television. The last half of act three, the ending of the movie, if you will, the final half hour of a feature film, that was your pay-per-view. So the, the focus should have been, sometimes it was, it was done well, other times not so well. It doesn't change the fact that it should have been the, the architecture when week one, week two, week three, all on television, week three ends up pretty fucking hot. You're going into the last 20 minutes of your feature film, if you will, where the, where the movie pays off, and that becomes your pay-per-view. Well, now that the pay-per-views have become less significant to the bottom line, I said less not meaningless, just less significant than the, to the bottom line, there's less emphasis on story. And now, and, and I'm talking about across the board. I'm not picking on anybody here. Or, and I'm not being critical. It's just the way it is. Everything changes, right? Everything changes. The way we make cars have changed. The way we grow food has changed. The way we watch wrestling has changed. And the business model has changed along with it. It is what it is. But back then... There was a much more. There was a, in WWF at the time, especially in the in the early in the eighties and early nineties, was really good at it. You know, everything built to that pay per view. And now you look at what's going on in television, and and I try to watch. I'm again not being critical. I try to watch, and I do watch. I, I, I drop in. I watch 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time of AEW and SmackDown and Raw, mostly because I feel obligated as a wrestling fan to support, you know, it's just the people, the, the effort, whatever. I feel like, you know, I spent 30 years plus in this business. I'm kind of a dick if I don't at least watch and try to support it and tweet about it and that kind of thing. But when I try to watch, I just, I, I don't get the sense that anything is leading to anything. 
You're not hooking me and dragging me and compelling me to watch next week. You're giving me good stuff, but it's almost standalone. As they say in the, in the television industry, it's an OTO. It's a one time only. It might as well be because it doesn't really compel me to wonder or discuss with my friends or with you, Conrad, I don't pick up the phone with you and not that you're not my friend. Of course you are, but you know, you're, you're probably of all the people that I have in my Rolodex, the person that I talk to the most, and I know you're a wrestling fan. I don't pick you. I don't pick up the phone and say, Hey Conrad, did you just see what happened on right. this show or that show? Cause it's just not, eh, it's just standalone. It doesn't drive me to the pay-per-view. And I think that's what's happened to the pay-per-view business. It's just become less critical to the, to the revenue model. Let's get back to uncensored 2000. Uh, we've already covered super brawl 2000, which took place in February. And quite frankly, not too much has been going on in WCW since then, uh, except a lot of losses to raw on Monday nights and seemingly more and more fans losing confidence in WCW and their programming with each passing week. This is indeed though, the last pay-per-view before you return to WCW and start working with Vince Russo. So this is a, a pay-per-view that you probably watched from home back then. Yeah, I did. Let's keep it going here. Um, Meltzer right. There's rumors flying around all week about potential management changes. As of press time, nothing has happened. The locker room talk is that Eric Bischoff is going to be taken over from Bill Bush. Bischoff of course has denied this to everyone, but the fact, um, the fact is they've meant nothing to quelling the rumors. And it said something to Bischoff's credibility, but then again, nobody has credibility in this business. One thing as especially it, you, Dave, one thing as it regards Bischoff that nobody's figured out is his potential to make the racial discrimination lawsuit disappear because of his long-term friendship with Sonny Ono. Stop right there. Stop right there. Perfect example of what oh, I'm going to be really careful here. I promised myself I wasn't going to do what I was just about ready to do. That's ridiculous. That comment is why I get upset. I, I got upset and still do to this day because this type of thing still happens to this day. There's no freaking way me coming back to WCW was going to have any impact on litigation regarding the racial discrimination lawsuit. And to even suggest that reflects not only complete ignorance, not in the derisive sense, but in the, in, in the literal sense of the term, complete fucking ignorance of the situation and using that situation to try to sound really smart when in fact it reflects complete ignorance in the literal sense of the term. That's as nice as I can be. Well, Meltzer would continue. Bill Goldberg strongly backs Bush, who, according to various sources among the wrestlers, had anywhere from 50 to 80% favoritism among the wrestlers when compared to Bischoff. Although Vince Russo is right now seemingly the most popular among the wrestlers, with the exception of Goldberg. Of course, the company is experiencing record low ratings, and the last two buy rates were embarrassing beyond anyone's wildest imagination. And ticket sales over the past few weeks and for the upcoming shows are just scary. So. It's a, it's a weird time where maybe the boys have more confidence in Russo than perhaps management does. Management is obviously looking at not the way everyone feels about WCW, but how is the business of WCW? And that is down, down, down. 
Um, talk to me. We've talked a lot about Bill Bush, but I don't know that we've talked enough about him in this era. What was your relationship like with Bill here in, in March of 2000? Oh, it wasn't good at all. Um, by March of 2000, look, Bill Bush made a move. So did Sharon Sadello. So did a number of other people, JJ Dillon, a whole, whole crew of people made a move, right? Because they saw what they thought was an opening. It was, it was the residual effect of the old, you know, Crockett promotions and the, in the early WCW political maneuverings that were, you know, a constant, you know, when, when Ted Turner, um, acquired Crockett promotions and, and turned it into WCW. It was so, you know, between Jim Barnett and Gary Chester and Sharon Sadello and, you know, so many of the people that, that were, key management people, they were all just looking for an opportunity. And when one didn't exist, they would try to create one. It was a, it was the most toxic environment I'd ever been in. Uh, and granted, I hadn't worked for big corporations when I came to WCW early in 91 or mid 91, whatever it was. So I didn't have a lot of experience, but what I saw was just like, fuck, these people are just, they spend more time trying to figure out how to screw each other over and take each other's job than they do figuring out how to do the job they already have. And it was evident, you know, across the board. And uh, Bill wasn't one of those people. In fact, Bill, early on, Bill and I got along great because Bill was a numbers guy and I wasn't. You know, I didn't have a lot of familiar familiarity with, you know, corporate finance. I had zero familiarity with corporate finance. So I relied on Bill. Bill was a straight shooter. Um, There was another guy there that worked with Bill. Uh, by the name of Don Edwards. Don Edwards is not a name that you'll hear too much of. Maybe in Guy Evans' book, Nitro, probably came up. But Don Edwards is another one. Very, very, I mean, he was, if you were casting a movie and needed a relatively young but really wise and conservative um, finance guy, that would be Don Edwards. Bill Bush was much the same, but Bill had a, just a touch of entrepreneur in him, meaning he was willing to look at those numbers and approach them with a what if kind of a perspective, meaning, you know, what if we take, for I'll give you a specific example. Bill Bush was a, was a very a big supporter of mine when early in whatever it was, 93, I guess, when Bob Dew and a guy by the name of Don Sandifer, who basically oversaw live events, 92, 93, whatever it was, they were in charge of live events, right? I had nothing to do with live events. I, I couldn't cancel a show. I couldn't go out and promote a show. I did nothing. They, they handled all of that. Um, I was looking at those numbers along with Bill Bush and Don Edwards and going, fuck. Every time we go out the door, we're losing money. And Bill, Bob Dew, and Don Sandifer, their solution that they presented to Turner management was to do more house shows. Let that sink in. Yes, the gross number would get bigger. So if, let's say, for example, you're doing 100 shows a year and they're each doing you know, $20,000. Great. That's your number. Well, if we, inc- if we increase it by 50 shows, we'll do an even bigger number. You're right. The problem is every one of those shows, we're losing money. Right. So if you go from a hundred where you're losing money and increase to 150, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose more money, right? That should be freaking obvious. Now I'm again, I was, I, I was a finance virgin. 
I hadn't, I hadn't, hadn't ever, not to get graphic here, popped my finance cherry. So I was learning on the job, but even I, you know, my wife wouldn't let me out of the house with a checkbook at the time. Even I could look at those numbers and go, well, fuck, that doesn't make any sense. And Bill Bush and Don Edwards were two guys in finance. And keep in mind, again, this is a little detail, but it's an important one. Neither one of those two guys reported to me, hmm. right? Finance and legal reported to Turner. They, to to Turner, uh, a woman by the name of Vicki Miller, who was the head of corporate finance for Turner. Uh, that's where finance reported and legal reported to Turner Legal, not to me. Now, there was a dotted line there, meaning we worked together, but they didn't report to me. I couldn't hire them. I couldn't fire them. I couldn't give them a raise. I couldn't yell at them. If they weren't doing what I wanted them to do or if I didn't feel like they were servicing WCW the way they – because that's really what they were. They were an extension of Turner Corporate Finance and Turner Corporate Legal, so they were providing a service for the most part. And if I felt like they weren't being responsive or engaged, I could certainly go to their bosses and – attempt to make a change. But for the most part, they didn't, they didn't report to me. Not for the most part. They, in fact, did not report to me. But we worked very closely together. Bill Bush was one of, one of the guys early on who sat down with me and helped me pitch my approach to the arena business, even though it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't my responsibility. It was affected WCW, of course, but it was outside of my area of responsibility, which at that time was just television. I couldn't hire and fire talent. I'm talking early on now. Couldn't hire and fire talent. Wasn't involved in creative. I was involved in getting the television product to television with the best possible uh, production values. That was me. The rest of it was somebody else's shit. But I could see it. Bill Bush could see it. Don Edwards could see it. Dick Cheatham, another name. He was very supportive, although he didn't work for WCW. He was a he was a real uh, he was a supporter and a fan, and you know he, he had more stroke, I guess, to to rip off Jeff Jarrett at this point. He had more st- stroke with Turner Corporate Finance than Bill Bush or Don Edwards did, because he was a higher level uh, executive in in finance. But another one who looked at our proposals and looked at our numbers and the way we arrived at our decisions in, in terms of what I wanted to present to Bill Shaw in terms of canceling the house shows back in the day. Bill was one of the, you know, he led the charge with me. So we had a really good working relationship for a long time. And during the peak, you know, the success of WCW, Bill and I were, were very close. We were beyond, you know, close working uh, a close working relationship and we had become socially, we'd become friends. You know, he lived a half a mile from me in, in the neighborhood where I lived. And, you know, we would occasionally get together on the weekends and, you know, there was a afternoon, Saturday afternoon where it was a beautiful day in, in Atlanta and I had my plane. I just felt like flying somewhere. So I called Bill Bush and we flew to Charleston for lunch and, and back. So we had a great working relationship, but when the opportunity, when the, when the wheels were falling off and I sat down with Bill on September 9th, the Thursday, September 9th, I'll never forget it. And kind of vented Bill took that opportunity along with a couple others that I mentioned previously and decided this was their play and they, they played it. And, and they failed fucking miserably. All of them from JJ Dillon who shit his pants and, and I should say shit the bed 
um, Sharon Sadello, Bill Bush, the whole the whole group of them, you know, embarrassed themselves. They weren't ready for what they were trying to do. And at that point, I knew it. Bill knew what he did. And when Bill heard that Brad Siegel and I were speaking again, Bill knew exactly where he stood with me. Anybody that really knows me well knows that I'm a I'm I forgive people pretty easily for stupid shit, you know, things that don't cost my cost me a lot of money or things that don't hurt my family. Eh, in the big scheme of things, eh, I don't really give a shit. If you offend me, if you piss me off, you call me name, I don't really care, right? But if you try to fuck me, if you try to hurt my family in any way, including financially, then your name goes on a list that it's never going to come off of, ever. <laughs> ever fucking ever. And Bill knew that. He knew me well enough to know that. So he, he was when, – when the rumors began to manifest, Bill was long gone. He was, he was moving – I think he moved back to like New Orleans or something selling boats. Well, it's fun that this all got started because, you know, you admitted that you really hadn't worked in a big corporate environment. I mean, and you've often talked about the other tower where guys would wear their, their blue suits and their power red ties and their wingtip shoes. I mean, you were more of a, of an untucked shirt guy and you ever wonder why traditional button ups look so long and baggy. Well, that's because they're never meant to be worn that way. Untucked shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. Untuck it is the brand you've been looking for. It's the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required. No matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. Have you been frustrated with buying shirts in the past? Let me tell you, untuck it has changed the shirt shopping experience. It's one thing to see how it looks, uh, but it's another thing to actually see how it fits. And if you're going to wear your shirt untucked, it creates some unique situations. If you're just looking at a picture online or you're looking at it on a rack, untuck it has mastered this with more than 50 fit combinations. Untuck it shirts look great on tall, short, slim, athletic, whatever you got. It's going to help fit you better than ever before. And you've actually had great experience with this. I know that you picked up some shirts online and I think they even have a couple of brick and mortar stores, but not in Cody, but you've got some of these now and you love them. Dude. I, again, I love doing this show with you for a lot of reasons. I really do. It's, it's good business, but I really enjoy doing this. I look forward to doing it with you. But one of the other reasons I love doing this show is you, I, I get exposed to products and services that I would otherwise probably not connect with for just, I don't know, just because of my personality, I guess. I just, I tend not to, I'm not an online shopper per se, right? So when we got an opportunity to have Untucket as a sponsor, um, like, so many of our sponsors do. They send us the product so that we can vet it and make sure we feel good about it and try it out. So when we talk about it, we're not just reading copy, right? I mean, anybody can do that. And I got, you know, an opportunity. I got two, uh, two shirts from Untucket when we were still in Florida before we came back to Wyoming. And I went, wow, the, I love these. I mean, the quality of the shirts are great. They fit fantastic. Now, fast forward about a month or two later, Mrs. B and I are visiting my brother and sister in Minneapolis and her family. She's got a lot of extended family in Minneapolis. And we go to a mall called the Ridgedale Mall in Minnetonka, Minnesota. It's where my brother lives. 
And we're walking, just killing time. We didn't have any, we weren't shopping for anything. We're just walking around looking for something to kill the morning with. And I see an Untucket store. And I thought, well, this is great because I, you know, I'll go online, I'll look at the product, but you can't feel it. You can't touch it. And I thought, well, what a great opportunity. I walked out with a shitload of stuff because it, <laughs> it, it felt so good and it fits so well. I bought some really, really cool stuff and they have such a big variety. You know, if you, if you go to the, the online store, you can find anything that you want in the, 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 the look the fit and the feel of the Untucket product is outstanding. I highly recommend it. We can't recommend it enough. And just don't take our word for it. Try Untucket for yourself. Visit Untucket.com and use our promo code 83 weeks for 20% off of your first order. And 83 weeks is squished together. There's no space in between. Uh, there you yeah, go. One more, one more thing about this. You know, I've been working out, you know, for a couple months now. I've dropped about 30 pounds since the end of January. But prior to that, you know, I'm, I'm not a big guy. I'm not a big frame guy. Right. I, you know, I was, I was pushing to 25. I should only weigh about a buck 80, maybe less. So I was, I was carrying, I was carrying a load, so to speak. And, and my shoulders are broad enough that I, I needed an extra large, sometimes a double X shirt to kind of hide the obvious, if you know what I mean. And, and still look pretty decent. And if I tried to put on a regular button down shirt, it looked like I was wearing a tent that I stole from the guy next door. It just looked fucking horrible. But even carrying the extra weight that I was carrying, the untucked, there was, there were shirts there that, you know, they fit you. They, they accomplished what we needed to accomplish in terms of hiding the obvious, but still looked really, really good. So if you're carrying a cup, carrying around a couple extra, you know, bags of groceries, Definitely want to take a look at these shirts. And if you happen to be fit and trim, you'll look even better. So enough of that. Sorry. Untuckit.com. The promo code is 83 weeks. You'll get 20% off your first order. They've even got free shipping and returns on all orders in the United States. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com. Untuckit.com. The promo code is 83 weeks. And you get 20% off your first order. Eric loves it. You will too. Let's talk about where business is, and then we'll move on to more creative pieces. March of 99, your average attendance is 7,934 fans. Fast forward one year, the average attendance is down 76%. It's 1,896 fans. But what does Crash it mean? TV, baby. Crash TV. <laughs> the dollars are a similar story. Your average gate in March of 99, 178 grand. Here in March of 2000, 46,000. So it's down 73%. Uh, you went from selling out 21% uh, of your house shows in March of 99. You're selling out exactly zero here. Uh, you know right? what? I, I, I hate to interrupt you. I know it's rude, but you cover a lot of ground pretty fast. What's really interesting is you're comparing March of 99 when business was the shits yeah. to 2000 when it's the super shits. I mean, if you go back to March 98 or March 97, you know, look at that cataclysmic kind of graph. That's amazing. But to, you know, to have such a significant drop in attendance, revenue, and every other, you know, quantifiable form of measuring anything, um, that significant of a drop from a horrible period of time to even a more horrible period of time in 2000s, even more staggering. 
Yeah. As Bruce would say, it would have had to improve quite a bit to just be the shits. Uh, <laughs> March of 99, your average rating 4.09. They're down 36.7% here. Your average rating is 2.59. So while ratings are down 36%, you know, your money is down 73% at the gate. So just really, really disaster territory for WCW. Uh, we should mention Meltzer would uh, hit the news and say, Dad, DDP, and Kevin Nash, the list of wrestlers whose pay has been cut in half with the new WCW policy regarding wrestlers on the DL. Of course, that's the disabled list. The reality of this new policy is twofold. First off, it does encourage wrestlers who are taking more time off than they need uh, to economically return to work, and that's good. The bad is it also encourages wrestlers who are really hurt to return as quickly as possible and not miss any time at all while injured, which encourages injuries, not healing properly. And is guaranteed to make, uh, the drug situation in the company worse for that very reason. Page is expected to be back in early April. Nash should be back imminently. Hall is on the DL and there is expected to be some form of punishment delivered to him. Once he's back on the active roster, of course, Scott Hall has, uh, been battling with some real personal problems going through a a rocky split with his wife of many years and he's had some substance issues he's ran afoul with the law a little bit it's a dark time for scott hall of course that story has a happy ending he's pulled the nose up in real life now but let's talk about the policy here because for a long time it looked like guys were trying to sort of gamify the system even when you first came into the company you were told by uh, a wcw stalwart Hey man, these airline tickets, there was a hustle for airline tickets and other people had a hustle for reimbursements on, uh, on hotels and the boys realized, Hey, if I'm, if I'm hurt, I get paid my full pay and I get to sit home. And as a result, I think a lot of people thought, Hey, they're starting to abuse that. So they amend the policy here. This isn't a policy change that you made. This is made prior to your return but you're probably familiar with, with what the dynamic was there. what do you think of the decision? And, uh, is there a, a foolproof way to get this done? There is no foolproof way. You know, there's always going to be ramifications to any policy. There's always going to be, and this is true, not just, you know, in, in the wrestling industry, certainly not just true in WCW in 2000, the period of March of 2000, but it's true across the boards. People will find a way to game anything and take advantage of any situation. It's, I guess, you know, dark side of human behavior (laughs) and and not all cases, but in, in many cases, there is no, there is no foolproof way to address this situation. Now let's, let's, you know, get on the context train and, you know, head into reality here a little bit. Um, Again, look at WCW in totality and in context. You know, we we had to offer guarantees in order to attract top talent back in the mid-90s. And actually, by the way, this is another narrative item. I I guess I I should just let it go and hope people figure it out on their own eventually, but most people will never will because they listen to the narrative and not to the facts. I didn't create guarantee contracts. I was fucking hired on a guarantee contract. And when I got to WCW as a C-Squad announcer, all of the talent there had guaranteed contracts. So I didn't invent the shit. I inherited it. 
But the reason that there were guaranteed contracts is because unlike the WWF, WCW didn't have the profit streams, the revenue sources to share revenue. Pay-per-views were doing the shit. So house shows were miserable, as we talked about earlier. There was no licensing and merchandising. So if somebody were to come into WCW and Jim Hurd or Bill Watts or Jim Ross or whoever, Dusty Rhodes, were to say, Kip Fry, uh, were to say, don't worry, kid. Come on over to WCW. We're going to give you 25% of the pay-per-view business, 25% of the house shows you're on, 25% of the licensing and merchandising. You know, we're going to really load you up. 25% of fucking nothing is nothing. They didn't have it. So in order to attract talent or keep talent, what was the only, just the only, there were no other options. What was the only alternative? Guarantee them the money that they felt they could have made working for somebody else. That's it. Now, fast forward from that point, 91, when I got there, when that was the situation, fast forward now to 96, 97, 98, when all of a sudden there is a bunch of revenue. But we hadn't kind of restructured our deals. In other words, you know, we didn't, we hadn't gotten to the point where we were successful enough, long enough to gradually start rewriting contracts to probably reflect more of what we see in the WWE, guaranteed contracts, which they're now doing, where you have a downside guarantee. So if you're hurt or for whatever reason you're not being booked, at least you could pay the light bills, right? And I'm I'm exaggerating there. The downside guarantees are substantial. But – we hadn't gotten there yet and there was a lot of abuse where guys would get hurt and they would take the time off because they take more time off than they really needed or they would fake injuries or they'd work the system, game the system, if you will. That happened a lot across the boards. Um, and again, I, as you pointed out, I wasn't part of the decision to restructure those deals, but I think it was a smart decision. I would have supported it had I been asked because you have to find a way to – you're not going to fix it. You're not going to change it, it being people gaming the system, but you can certainly mitigate it. You can certainly minimize it. And this was an effort on WCW's part. I'm sure Diana Myers was was leading that charge. Um, I'm guessing I should say. I don't know it. But I'm guessing she led the charge to restructure those deals and and mitigate the abuse that was taking place. It's such a wild thing to even have to discuss, but that's the wrestling business. Let's talk about uh, the UK tour. This is a different tale, and, and it's always been fascinating to me that the wrestling companies figure this out and everybody does it sort of on different timetables. But when, when business was down for Vince McMahon in the mid nineties, he could go tour Europe and he would have sold out arenas where, you know, there'd be sparse crowds here. And, and there was even times where the, the company was running, you know, high school gyms and the like, but then they go overseas and man, they just, they can't print enough tickets. Fans are just, they have a huge appetite for it. WCW does the same thing here, but years later, TNA would do that. And, and when things looked sort of bleak for impact at different times, they could go abroad man, the crowds were rowdy and the gates were big and sort of the same thing here for WCW in 2000, Birmingham drew 11,812 fans. The gate is over 383,000. 
Uh, London is going to draw 10,450 fans. The gate's more than 375,000. And Manchester is the biggest uh, draw of all. 16,318 fans paying 447,000. No surprise here. Bret Hart is the biggest star on the tour, getting huge reactions each time. Um, was that one of the original ideas of, of bringing Brett over for whatever reason, he's always had a huge, huge impact in Europe. Uh, one of the biggest draws there. And when WCW signs him, a lot of people sort of jump to the conclusion that, Hey man, this means they're going to be doing a lot of European stuff because Brett would be the top guy for that. Was that ever discussed or was that in the plans? And why don't we see more of it? Do you think, um, it was a part of the plan. It was a part of the rationale and to a degree, the justification for the amount of money that we paid Brett, knowing that Brett was a commodity, uh, in Europe, knowing that over a period of time we could recoup at least a portion, significant portion of the amount of money that we're paying him because he was such a draw in Europe. Uh, but it was a secondary consideration. The primary consideration going back to why we hired Brett is when we were faced with creating another primetime show, uh, not, not a YouTube show, not a Facebook show, not an internet show, uh, not a show in syndication since YouTube and the internet really weren't viable at that time. And YouTube didn't even exist, but it, 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 we, we brought Brett in primarily to help drive and be the face of the brand for thunder. That was the original intent. Now things changed. A lot of things changed. Um, but the primary consideration was, holy shit, we're going to, you know, we've got all these guys we've been exposing and to a degree overexposing on nitro. We need a fresh big name, big brand that could be a game changer to help us anchor, um, Thursday. The secondary consideration was Europe. And keep in mind, we didn't tour Europe as much as WWF did at the time. Um, we didn't really have the relationships with the promoters. WWF had been doing it for a long time. They had a great, really had a great relationships with some of the top promoters. They had a great TV, uh, in a lot of the markets where WCW was still trying to carve out a niche and create a footprint. So our, our international tour model was uh, nascent. Uh, even in the late nineties, we were just beginning to really develop it and the relationships necessary to pull it off. Uh, but so it was a secondary consideration, not a primary one. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here and talk about, um, I guess it's worth mentioning that there are some shenanigans that happen on this trip. It feels like anytime you're going to put a bunch of wrestlers on a, on a plane to Europe, uh, and there's going to be alcohol involved. Shenanigans are going to happen. Apparently Brian knobs would shave the walls eyebrow. And some of Flair's eyebrow while both of the guys were asleep. Brian Knobs had a reputation for uh for doing this. And and supposedly once upon a time to make sure that he sort of threw people off the scent after he went and mowed down a few guys' eyebrows, he went in the bathroom and chopped off his own so he could say, Oh, it wasn't me. Look, they got me too. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's that's just awesome. <laughs> That is, that's classic Brian knobs. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's the best shit ever. It's, uh, 
You got to wonder when those guys wake up, are they just looking all over? Hey, where, where'd my eyebrow go? Where my eyebrows are gone. I must've left it around here somewhere. Well, if you're looking for parts for your daily driver or your classic car, you got to go to rockauto.com. You see rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for more than 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for all of your auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. And they've got everything you could ever need. Now know this from personal experience. I'm talking, uh, engine control modules, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, man, even new carpet. And it's for everything, not just your, your daily driver, but a classic car too. That's when I first became introduced to rockauto.com. My dad got an old vet and, uh, well, those things need a little work every now and again, well, we got everything we needed in a few easy clicks. It was delivered directly to the door. The catalog is so unique and easy to navigate over at rockauto.com. Even my dad can do it. And he would, he would agree. He's the most technology challenged man in all of Alabama, but you'll quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand specs and prices that you prefer, but maybe best of all prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do it yourselfers. You may not realize this, but if you go down to one of those big box retailers around the corner, you're probably going to see that they've got a different price for a professional mechanic than they would for me or you. That's just bull. You're going to get the same great, reliably low price every time at rockauto.com. So don't take my word for it. Go see for yourself all the parts available for your car or truck at rockauto.com. And when you get the little box that says, how did you hear about us? Please type in 83 weeks so they know that we sent you. Rockauto.com, man. An amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, all at rockauto.com. Uh, let's talk about Brett again. He's going to pop up on TSN's Off the Record, uh, which is a big deal in this era. And it's kind of weird because, you know, for, for Landsberg to be such a big part of, of the wrestling discussion and landscape for so long. Seemingly you never even hear about the guy anymore, but he's doing a sit down here with Brett and they discuss a lot of stuff about, you know, the bad things that have happened in his life, going back to the Montreal screw job. And of course, losing his brother Owen and, and now having his head kicked off by Bill Goldberg at Starcade 99. What was your relationship like with TSN and Landsberg? And, and what did you think of the off the record television show? Um, I, you know, it was really well done. It was r- really well produced, but okay. I'm being careful here. I'm editing myself. I've often joked about how Canadians are marks for themselves, but it's kind of not a joke. I mean, Canadians, and it's not a bad thing, by the way, I'm not criticizing it. Canadians are the most nationalistic I mean, they were doing, you know, make Canada great again before anybody else ever thought of making America great again. Everything that Canadians do, they take a tremendous amount of national pride in. And I wholeheartedly support that. I am not being critical. So if anybody is listening to me right now and you take it upon yourselves to post something on social media about how Eric Bischoff is burying Canadians, please grab a rusty crowbar and go fuck yourself. Okay. Because that's not what I'm doing. All right? What I am saying is that culturally, Canadians have a tendency, or at least they did back then, had a tendency to be much more nationalistic about everything Canadian 
than most Americans. Now, it didn't change the fact, again, not being critical, that the minute any of them started making any money, they got the fuck out of Canada because the taxes were too high. And they came and they bought nice places in you know, Los Angeles and Florida and other places, and they, they, they became American citizens because it's you know cheaper to live here. But nonetheless, when it comes to Canadian pride, it oozes through the – pores and orifices of every Canadian I've ever done business with. And I think that's a good thing. Now, unfortunately, when you, when I would do a show with Michael Landsberg, and I think I did one or two, um, everything was from the Canadian point of view, right? If Bret Hart said it, it was absolutely the truth. If any Canadian had a point of view, any Canadian professional had a point of view. It was gospel regardless of any facts, regardless of the rest of the story or the underlying situation that, that, that may have been central to the discussion. None of that mattered. The Canadian said it, it was gospel. So, you know, when I would go on, um, uh, Lensburg show or when I did, I can't remember if I did it once or twice. Let's just say I did it once. Uh, Cause I, somebody just sent me a clip of it the other day. Um, it was from a very decided, decidedly Canadian point of view and, uh, you know, it would be adversarial in a fun way. I mean, I liked work. I liked interviewing with, cause he was, he was in, in your, he's kind of like you remember when the first time I came to your house yeah. and, and you, you, you interviewed me in front of your friends and we, <laughs> you just, you just, you, you didn't interview me, motherfucker. You cross examined me. It was like I was on trial. Uh, and by the end of it, because you fed me more beer than any human being should be able to consume. And by the end of it, I felt like a really hammered Tom Cruise, you know, or you can't handle the truth. Give me the truth. I mean, it was horrible. And it, well, horrible, but fun. And that's kind of the way, without the alcohol, that's kind of the way, you know, the interviews with Landsberg would go. Because he was just so pro-Canadian and anything that came out of Canada or any opinion that was based in Canada. So it, it, a lot of it was adversarial and a lot of it was just fun jousting. A lot of it was great television and great radio, which isn't necessarily, you know, a host and a guest, you know, patting each other on the back. You, you need that, you know, head banging and, you know, uh, conflict and drama and resolution. But, um, for the most part, he was a, he's so pro Canadian that it was really hard to have a, a well-balanced conversation with him. Let's, uh, let's briefly touch on the Bret Hart Goldberg thing. He, he said in this interview, um, he's essentially being uh, bitter towards Goldberg. And he says that Goldberg closed his eyes and never looked at his direction, which is why he kicked him so hard. And Brett says he would never hit someone with his eyes closed. And, uh, later in another interview, he would say the professional, the wrestling profession is in the toilet. I'm looking forward to running away from it as fast as possible. I look forward to a day, not only when I can wash my hands of it completely, but never have anything to do with any aspect of it. Of course he would change his opinion on that, but that just sort of gives you a look into what he's thinking at the time. Recently, Brent Hart sat down with Steve Austin and they did a broken skull session on the WWE network and. Brett just absolutely buried Goldberg and said that, uh, he shouldn't be in the hall of fame. 
and he was the most dangerous wrestler he ever worked with. And he hurt everybody he ever worked with. Very, very critical of Goldberg. Did, what did you make of his comments then and now? Oh, God, I hate, I don't hate, that's the wrong word. I'm really uncomfortable <laughs> talking about this stuff because I really try to not be negative when it comes to certain people. And look, this is very personal to me. And I, I think you've gotten a glimpse into this. It's not just about Brad, but there, you know, there's just other people that, you know, we end up talking about or discussing. And I find myself, if I allow, if I allow myself to take a position and really dig in and criticize other people for what they think, what they say, how they behave, I find myself being very negative. And I guess Mrs. B has taught me, you know, over the course of 35 or 36 years together, that carrying around that negativity is, you're only hurting yourself. Yep. You're only making yourself miserable. You're only taking away from your own potential. You're only digging yourself into a deeper, darker place that doesn't serve you or the people you love. And I do it. I catch myself on this podcast. I catch myself. Sometimes I'm Sometimes I'm able to hit the brakes before it goes too far. Sometimes not, but I try, at least I try every single day not to be negative or allow other people to make me negative. And I didn't see the Brett Stone Cold interview, the most recent one. I'm not going to see it because I made up my mind back in the UK earlier or last year when I you know, crossed paths with Brett and we found each other sitting at a table with a large group of people, but Brett was, you know, three feet away from me and we we're drinking beers. Now, obviously Brett and I were, you know, chatting each other up, but we we're all part of the communal table, if you will, of guys that were just having fun and enjoying themselves and, you know, telling old stories. And I made up my mind sitting at that table that I was no longer going to say or react to anything negative that Brett Hart says, because I think deep down, I, I, I believe Brett Hart's a great guy. I really do. I, I think he, I experienced it when I first started doing business with him. I th think I know, I think I know who Bret Hart is as a human being. Unfortunately, so many things have happened to Bret or Bret has allowed things in some cases, not obviously not all of them, but Bret has chosen to carry that negativity around with him wherever he goes. And the minute you put a microphone in front of it, you hear it all over again and it's dark it, it, and I choose not to listen to it. Not because I don't believe Brett, not because I don't think that Brett's justified in some respects. None of that. I'm not, be, I'm not, I just, I don't want to participate. I don't want to be a part of it because it's, it's like giving somebody, I, I you know, I do the uh, YouTube thing, um, yeah. 83 weeks with Christy Olson, right? And I love doing it. These guys, they're great guys. We do a short 20 minute, you know, YouTube show where we kind of recap the 83 week show of, of that week. And I said something to them the other day that I think applies here. You know, it was in the context of, was I ever afraid of, you know, getting in the ring with Stone Cold Steve Austin because of our history. And I said something, I'm going to repeat it here. Um, and, and I'm going to preface it by saying I am not trying to suggest 
that I ever was or am a tough guy because I'm, I'm not. Now, there was a point in my life, you know, in my early 20s through my mid-40s where I could go, and I loved it. I looked at it as recreation, whether it was a bar fight or bouncing in a bar or, you know, whatever. I just loved the contact. But I'm not that anymore. And I never really was. I, I wasn't afraid of it. And I enjoyed doing it, but it doesn't mean I was that great at it. I just, I, my point to it is I was never afraid. They asked me, were you ever afraid of any, you know, wrestler you got in the ring with? And my answer was, I've never been afraid. And this is the truth. I've never been afraid of any person, any one person. I've been in some ways intimidated, not physically, not in the sense of a physical confrontation, but you know, Vince McMahon is an example. Never was afraid of him physically. When I called him out and challenged him to a fight, hoping he'd show up, I wasn't afraid. I didn't give a fuck if I got my ass kicked either. I just wasn't afraid. And I and and they asked me why, and I said because I I've always believed that fear is a weapon, and if if I'm fearful of someone, I'm giving them a weapon that they can use against me. And I feel the same way about negativity. I've learned to feel the same way about negativity. If I allow someone to make me negative, I'm giving them a tool that they can use against me. And that's why when I say I don't listen to it and I don't want to get into it and I don't want to be critical of something that someone has said. And, I, you know, you know me. You bring up Dave Meltzer, I'm all ready. I'm ready to go off. You know, and, and there are other people that kind of fall into that category because they affected my life. They affected my business. They affected my money. They go on a list and they're not coming off. But I'm not going to let that happen any more than, than I can help, you know. And that's why when I say I don't listen to Brett or I'm, I don't really want to comment on the negative things Brett says, it's not because I'm a Brett Hart mark. It's not because I'm trying to get myself over. It's not because I don't want to be negative. Well, no, it is because I don't want to be negative. It's because I don't want to allow myself to get into a deep fucking dark hole that makes me angry the rest of the day or makes me, it gives me the opinion when I cross paths with somebody that I'm already antagonized just by looking at them. I don't want that. I just don't want that in my life. Too much baggage to carry around. Well, let's talk anyway, about sorry. somebody who's uh, no longer being carried around. I'm going to butcher the name. I'm going to need you to correct me. Jay Haseman, Hosman, Jay Hosman, Jay Hosman, who head of the pay-per-view division was fired. No, wait a minute. It was Jay Hasman. Hasman, I think. Okay. Well, either way, Jay is, uh, he's out of here. Uh, Meltzer would say there's been heat on him ever since he was the one who got the blame for the screw up at Halloween havoc in 1998, when WCW increased the show to three and a half hours instead of the usual two hours, and 47 minutes. And somehow most of the cable companies never got the word leading to most of the companies cutting off the Goldberg page title match. So Jay's out. Uh, we don't hear that name a lot here. What can you tell us about Jay? Uh, Nick Lambros hired Jay to, I think to oversee pay-per-view and marketing. I think the Sharon Sadello had transitioned to international at that point. I'm, could be wrong about that. I have to go back and try to find some kind of documentation, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Um, and Nick Lambros brought Jay in. Jay came from, I don't remember what his credentials were, but he had a resume. He had a pretty good resume. He had worked for 
some large uh, networks and cable systems previous to, to WCW. So on paper, you know how this goes, Conrad. On paper, um, he looked like a great candidate. However, <laughs> he's the guy that created the cat's ass logo. That's just summarize. <laughs> he did. That was that was his. He created the cat's ass logo. Of you know course. what I'm talking about, We're right? Talking about the redesigned WCW logo in the year 2000, maybe 99, but it's the the thing that yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's not a good really? look, and 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 nobody no. has ever liked it at all, ever anywhere except maybe him. No, and he, look, good guy. By the way, uh, he. He was in over his head, um, made some poor decisions, didn't have enough confidence to follow through the way he should have followed through, um, but mostly just over his head and bit off more than he could chew and he became overwhelmed. And rather than fight his way out of it or be honest about it, he just kind of clammed up, went into a hole and let the shit fall in all around him. Um, he ended up over at TNA. Jeff Jarrett and uh, Jerry Jarrett hired him. He, yeah. So he, he, he had life after death for a little while. But, uh, yeah, he was originally part of the old Jerry Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett TNA experiment. Let's talk he convinced them that he convinced, I, I believe. Now, you'd have to talk to Jeff about this. But I'm pretty sure, if memory serves me even remotely correctly, um, Jay Hassman convinced Jeff and Jerry Jarrett, that pay-per-view companies would sign on for a weekly pay-per-view with no television to support it. That that should tell you everything you need to know right there. Well, I thought the name sounded familiar uh, because I've always been curious about the uh, the early days of of TNA, and I read uh, Jerry's book, and uh, a quick Google search shows that he uh, well he faced uh, he pled guilty way back when in 2007, the two felony charges of second degree grand larceny and first degree falsification of business records. Uh, this according to a report that I found online, but the idea is he's working in the pay-per-view department for the very early days of TNA. And he's claiming the first pay-per-view did 80,000 buys. Uh, well, in reality it did 25,000 and subsequent weeks did 15 and 10, uh, the entire time. He was reporting bigger numbers, so they were making business decisions uh, headed a different direction. So pay-per-view professional wrestling was the downfall of Jay, uh, allegedly. Let's talk about Goldberg. Meltzer would say the tentative idea for Goldberg's in-ring return is now May. He's going to appear on the April 10th Denver uh, Nitro, but only for the live house. And uh, Alex Marvez on WrestlingObserver.com spoke to Goldberg. And said he was really annoyed by internet reports that he wasn't supportive of Bill Bush and the current creative. Uh, he says the only reason his return is being delayed is that he's dropped 27 pounds and he needs about six weeks of training to get his look back. Uh, but he is going to be doing, uh, some press tour stuff for WCW. Uh, it's an interesting thing where, you know, it's sort of all over the place. Uh, you know, who's in, who's out, whether it's DDP or Goldberg or Kevin Nash. And as a result, WCW is leaning on what they know they can trust. And that's Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Uh, let's get to uncensored. The show starts with, uh, some video packages. They're saying this is sting versus Lex Luger for the last time ever. It's Sid versus Jeff Jarrett for the WCW world title. 
and of course, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair in the Yappa Pie Strap uh, match. And then we, we cut backstage and we see Team Package, which is Lex Luger, Ric Flair, and Miss Elizabeth. They're shown entering the arena, all jazzed up about tonight's show. And um, we see Ron and Don Harris as tag alongs for Double J. What did you think of that group? The Harris boys and Jeff Jarrett as like their own little clique here. Uh, I know I'm probably, um, tainted a little bit, but it, it just didn't click for me. And again, I, I, I have nothing. I have more respect for Jeff Jarrett now than I ever have in my life. I've gotten to know him better as a person. He's gone through more as, as a human being, uh, than a lot of us ever have. Uh, he's come out on top. He's been challenged. He's faced horrible things in his life. And he's come out to be a great human being and a very talented human being, a valuable part of WWE, in my opinion. And even when I worked with him in TNA, our relationship was cordial but distant. I would refer – we were superficially friendly in in TNA. But – Nonetheless, when it came to, there was a period of time when Bruce was working at, at TNA and so was I, and Bruce had to take a little bit of time off and I kind of stepped in for a minute and I would always depend on Jeff as an agent to communicate what we were trying to get out of a match because I think Jeff Jarrett as a producer under the right circumstances, <laughs> asterisk, probably one of the best I've seen. There's probably, I'm sure there's better. I know there are, but I haven't worked directly with, with, with them. So I'm not criticizing anybody else or not paying, not paying homage to others. Uh, but I've watched Jeff. I watched Jeff communicate, especially to younger talent. Jeff really knows psychology. Jeff really understands timing and pace and, and, and how to get the audience. Well, it's just psychology, but how to get the audience to react the way you want to react, the way you want them to react and when. I, I think the world of Jeff as a producer, as a talent, I'm sorry, Jeff. I hope you're not listening to this, but if you are, I don't mean this with anything but honesty and, and love. Eh, eh, just never that guy. Call it size, call it delivery, look, whatever. Certainly not his work. Jeff was a great mechanic. He was a great storyteller in the ring. But when it came to the on-camera presence, it it was never that 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10. It was always a 6 or a 7, in my opinion. Not taking anything away from his in-ring ability. But in terms of it being a character that was compelling or interesting, just for me, it was never there. And that's just me. Maybe that's a flaw on my part. So when you ask me, what did I think of it? Especially because of the relationship with Russo and Jared at this point, he was being shoved down the audience's throat. They weren't buying him. And we'll get into it in more detail when we, when we cover their match on this show. But Man, you talk about a square peg in a round hole and bad casting in this particular scene or in this particular show. And again, we'll talk about it in more detail in the match, but this was about as bad of casting as you could possibly come up with. And I and I think it hurt Jeff. I think over pushing Jeff actually worked against him. If if it would have been more organic, 
if they wouldn't have tried so hard to get him over, if he wouldn't have tried so hard to get himself over, he probably would have gotten over more. But man, when you start cramming it down people's throats, I don't care. I've used this analogy before. Conrad, you and you and Megan took, you know, Lori and I out for sushi. You know how much I love sushi. But if you cram that down my throat, I'm gonna gag on it. And that's kind of what I think happened here. Yeah, this whole era of WCW, it feels like I wish we could all just control, alt, delete, and just start over. And it's twenty twenty. It's time for a lot of us to hit control, alt, delete and start fresh. To help control expenses and get your house in order, join American Home Shield. They can be a big help when stuff starts breaking down. What kind of stuff? Refrigerators, ovens, heating, air conditioning, plumbing, electrical systems, stuff insurance doesn't cover, stuff you don't want to mess with or go broke trying to get fixed. And now it's a great time to sign up and our listeners get $50 off any plan. Just go to ahs.com slash 83 weeks. And I got to tell you, if American Home Shield can't repair the covered item, they'll replace it or offer an alternate solution. And as the nation's largest provider, they've paid more in home warranty claims than any other company. But how about this number? They've paid out more than $2 billion in the last five years. And that's because they really are America's preferred home warranty. More than 1.8 million customers can't be wrong. Coverage for up to 21 home systems and appliances will be included, plus unlimited coverage for your electronics like tablets and flat screen TVs and more. They've got a nationwide network of more than 15,000 licensed professional contractors, so they can get you the right pro in your area to fix your problem. There's no inspections needed. There's no proof of maintenance required, and the coverage is available no matter how old your systems and appliances are. But maybe best of all, they've got plans and pricing to fit every budget This is going to help protect your home and help you plan for the cost of those unexpected repairs. And right now we've got an extra 50 bucks off just because you listen to this show. And I got to tell you, I've been doing mortgages since August of 2001. So I am very, very familiar with home warranty. And and these guys are the people that we have recommended for decades. American home shield has a plan for you that will help you recover all these costs plus unlimited electric electronics coverage. Don't take my word for it. Go check it out right now. Go to ahs.com slash 83 weeks and save 50 bucks and start protecting your home and budget from these inevitable breakdowns. That's ahs.com slash 83 weeks. That's ahs.com slash 83 weeks. And you'll get $50 off any plan. American home shield. Be sure with the shield limitations and exclusions apply. See plan for details. This is just smart business here. Is it not protect your investment? Let's keep going here. Let's talk about the first match here on the show. We've got the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea retaining the WCW cruiserweight title over psychosis seven minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would write to show the elementary lack of planning in the pre-match clips to build the match. The show to finish with where psychosis was actually pinned by Kaz Hayashi, as opposed to the match where he beat Kaz Hayashi tremendous only in WCW. Do we show a highlight reel to pump a guy up? when he's actually losing uh, hard knocks. Chris Candido is going to come out and do a little bit of commentary here. Ringside. We're trying to introduce him to this audience. who's probably familiar with his work from the WWF and ECW, but now he's coming in here to WCW. This match is uh, a bit of a miss. There is one point where Hooven two Guerrero is getting his ass kicked by Paisley. Mark Madden starts screaming cat fight, which is what they do on ECW, but it's not with two ladies. It's with Hooventude. 
the unbelievable top rope leg drop from psychosis. I don't know how that guy's still walking, but he is. And, uh, they missed the finish. They, they go back and do it again. It gets half a star in the observer. And this is, don't get me wrong. I love psychosis. You know how I feel about fucking Prince Ikea, but this is definitely not the, the cruiserweight bang that we're used to, uh, for the last, what, five years in WCW at this point. No, because the, the, the whole design model presentation of the cruiserweight division really began to unwind and kind of just dissipate where there was nothing really unique or distinctive about the cruiserweight division at this point. And, and, and that's partly, you know, bad creative it's lack of discipline and not the least of the three, the talent themselves, the, the, the cruiserweight talent themselves didn't want to be cruiserweights. They wanted the opportunity to, to to main event. They wanted to be, they all wanted to be stars, and they felt like I don't want to say in all cases, but in many of the conversations that I had at the time, and subsequently a lot of the stuff that I've read, you know, that others who are in the cruiserweight division talk about about this period of time, is they didn't want to be locked into the cruiserweight kind of category. And as, as a result, the presentation changed, the styles changed, the booking, the creative changed. And by this time in 2000, the cruiserweight division was just another division that didn't mean anything. It's, it's kind of like, what was the, what, what, what was the division that TNA had that was kind of a derivative the, of cruiserweights? The X division. The X division. It didn't mean a fucking thing. Right. It didn't mean anything. There was nothing unique about it. And when I first got to TNA, I don't want to go off on this. When I first got to the TNA, I, one of my first questions when I got more involved in creative is, what is the X Division? Describe it to me. Well, the only explanation is there is no explanation. Are you fucking kidding me? So the only rules are there are no rules. So that's just like every other match on the show, right? I mean, there's no there's no weight category. There's There's no distinction in style. There's no distinction in rules. There's no distinction in presentation. We're just calling it the X division to try to convince people it's different. It's not. It's just like fucking everything else with the same guys that you see in every other matches. That's what the cruiserweight division became in 2000. Yeah. It's a shame too, because it, man, it was such good stuff in the back. We've got mean gene interviewing bam, bam, Bigelow about his upcoming match with the wall. And, uh, Bam Bam has revealed that he was the wall's mentor and the man responsible for bringing the big guy to WCW. And, uh, next up we get Norman Smiley in full kiss garb tagging with kiss demon here, taking on lane and rave. They only get three minutes and 41 seconds. The really hot part of the match is when Mrs. Hancock comes out and woo, she's, uh, all the reason I need to hate David flair for the rest of my life. what did you think of the match? Uh, it, I didn't like any of it, <laughs> dude, this sucks. This should not be on pay-per-view. This is like, it, this it, is thunder it, shit. It, it was so fucking stupid. It, I mean, the demon character should have, should have just been retired as soon as it became apparent that we weren't going to do a long-term deal with Gene Simmons and kiss. That was the reason for the demon character in the first place. We didn't necessarily have a demon character and then we tagged in Gene Simmons. 
the demon character was created specifically and solely because of the longer term strategy and plan that we had in place or thought we were going to have in place with Gene Simmons. Once that deal fell apart, once we were no longer going to be working directly with Gene and Kiss to create this kind of army of Kiss demon-like characters, once that thing died, that character should have died. And it didn't. And it was just so bad. And then to have Norman smile, and I got to admit now, as hokey as this match was, as much as I didn't like it except for the obvious Miss Hancock portion of it, um, it made me laugh, but I'm not sure it was the kind of humor or the kind of levity that you want. It, I laughed, I think, because it was so ridiculous. And I'm not sure ridiculous should be a part of the formula. It was just stupid. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. Negative one star in the Observer. It is fun to see Norman Smiley have so much fun. And, uh, and I appreciate the, him dressing up in the kiss garb and all that as a, as a funny ha ha, but I don't know that I really want to pay money to see it on a pay-per-view. No. And, and, and unfortunately, and I, I think Norman Smiley, you know, again, we all often talk about, you know, this guy being underrated or this woman being underrated. I, I think Norman Smiley certainly falls, falls into the most underrated category from a technical, technical point of view. He had all the skills and the, in the physicality necessary to go out there and work a great match with almost anybody. Uh, I think his character was emerging. And I think there was probably, this is the part that when I see these matches with Norman, I really feel like, you know, we all, including myself, missed the boat with him because the potential was there. He was a lot like Ernest Miller, you know, came along towards the tail end, um, didn't really get the attention or the opportunity that he probably deserved to really exploit what could have been. And I think much like Ernest Miller, Norman had the potential of having a really, really great character. But, it, you know, they planted the seed, they threw a little water on it, grew a little bit, and then, you know, the bottom fell out of WCW and we never really saw it emerge. But the problem with this match like this and a guy like Norman Smiley is once you go out there and have this kind of a match, it's really hard for people to take you seriously. I mean, it takes it because not that it can't be done, but it's a whole different kind of effort to all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of like Disco Inferno. You know, we, we, we often talk about, laugh about, make fun of, have, have not make fun of, but have fun with the Disco Inferno character. But from a technical point of view, on the mic, and we'll see it a little bit on this pay-per-view when he's in commentary, um, on the mic, as a character, he played his character extremely well. So well that he'll never shake it. And he's still living with it today. You know, people don't take Glenn Gilberti seriously because they didn't take the character Disco Inferno seriously. And it's, you know, it's part of life in the wrestling business, but... Um, I, Norman falls in that same category for me. Tremendous stuff. Uh, in the backstage area, we see a fired up Booker T telling Billy Kidman that, uh, he's going to have his back. He should have it. And if not, just go away. And then we see David Flair and crowbar sporting neck braces after taking a beating at the hands of the wall on thunder. And Daphne is, uh, is having to promise that she won't go out there when the wall is in the ring. And of course she promises, but then. After Flair and Crowbar leave, she reveals that she had her fingers crossed the whole time. Oh my God. Yeah. 
Then we get three year old wrote this. Let me get bam, bam, Bigelow and the wall. They're going to go to a DQ three minutes and 26 seconds. Meltzer would say the highlight was wall splitting his pants. Uh, they're going to brawl to the back where wall will choke slam Bigelow through a table. It gets a dud rating, but after the match, Flair and crowbar attacked the wall and, uh, they carry Bigelow out on a stretcher after a choke slam through a table, which, uh, they have a couple of monitors set up here to make little miniature explosions, uh, like, you know, computer monitors, just a little hokey. Um, just a little, what was the wall's real name? Jerry, uh, toot, Jerry toot. I never, I never understood why there was fascination with him. I mean, decent worker, big guy, but man, they put a lot into him as a character. And I just never, and certainly in watching this show back a couple of days ago to prepare for this, rec- you know, th- this podcast, I, again, I was just shaking my head to go, what, 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 why, what, why did they do this? I have no idea what the fascination was with that character. Yeah. It was, I don't know. I mean, did you prefer like when you had renegade beat Steve Austin? That was your, that was, that was your father-in-law. <laughs> I love Blame that. him. <laughs> Come on, man. No, we're just, we're just spitting facts here. We're spitting truth. Come on. Uh, in the back, Brian knobs yells to mean Gene about how crowbar and bam, bam are the two gutsiest performers he'd ever seen. And Brian knobs dedicates his upcoming hardcore title match to, uh, the wall's latest victims. Uh, then we see this, uh, hardcore title match. It's Brian knobs and he's going to win the hardcore title from three count. That's right. Three guys, six minutes and 51 seconds. You know, it's come on, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. Conrad, all three of those guys, if they stepped on a truck scale together, didn't weigh as much as Brian knobs left ass cheek. It's not like, yeah, three guys, but there are three little guys. Now that being said, part of it in jest, I thought this was one of the best hardcore matches I can remember watching. Really? You hate, I fucking loved it. I hate hardcore matches. I fucking hate them. They're junk, garbage, lack of creativity, overused, overpromoted, fucking ugly to watch. Nobody looks good. It's just beating each other up with fucking pie pans and broomsticks and shit. And I fucking hate all of them except for this one. I like this one. You know why I like this one? Cause Brian knobs brought his shit out to the ring in a fucking wheelbarrow. That's right. He didn't reach under the ring and come up with a goddamn fire extinguisher. He came to the ring with it in a freaking wheelbarrow. That's the way you bring weapons to the ring. You don't look under the ring and see what the fucking tooth fairy left for you. Like you lost your eye tooth when you were a little kid. That's bullshit. That takes me out of the moment. What made me realize is the opening part of this match is that it had the potential of being a stellar, not just a good, a stellar hardcore match because it was the first logical thing I've ever seen in a hardcore match. You bring your shit to the ring in a wheelbarrow. Now, that being said, Three Count did a great job, a fucking great job, all three of them. They did such a great job. Brian sold his ass for off for these guys. He was stiff with them. He beat the fuck out of them, and they stood up to it, and they came back with their own shit. I think this is for my taste, just me, 
and little old me sitting here, Cody Wyoming, all by my lonesome. I love this hardcore match. I encourage you, WWE Network, go back, watch it. Tell me if I'm right. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if this is not one of, not the one of the best hardcore matches you've ever seen. Let's calm down and all that. Come on. It's the coffee, brother. It's the coffee. Uh, backstage, we see Mean Gene standing with Harlem Heat 2000. Um, we've got Stevie Ray, Big T, the former Ahmed Johnson. We've got Jay Biggs, the former Clarence Mason. And we've got Cash, who was 4x4, four four, the No Limit Soldiers. Uh, then we see a brief shot of a mysterious limo that had arrived earlier. And uh, now we've got Booker T and Billy Kidman taking on Harlem Heat. Six minutes, 59 seconds. Meltzer would say this was probably the greatest match the new Harlem Heat will ever have. They mainly got heat on Kidman. Uh, big T tried to hurdle the guardrail and clothesline Kidman and almost made it. Uh, it gets a star and a quarter. Of course, Booker and Billy Kidman pick up the win. I, I gotta say, man, anytime I see new Harlem heat, it's automatic fast forward button for me. I ain't into it. That was a shit. You know what I did like though? I was going to mention this last. I think we saw Mr. Biggs last week and I failed to comment on him. What a phenomenal talent. Yeah. What a wait, phenomenal. He was so good. He did uh, color commentary on this match. It's like, I don't know, man. He was like part Dusty Rose, part superstar Billy Graham, you know, threw a little Martin Luther King in there on a couple with a couple comments. I mean, he was so good. And he was good at tell, he wasn't just a good character for the sake of being a character. He didn't just have a good rap. He could tell a story and he could set up a story. I don't know whatever happened to Mr. Biggs. I, I think he was an attorney in real life. He's probably practicing law, you know, living, living large somewhere. But man, as a commentator, as a manager, uh, wow, he was really good. He was good. He first showed up in, uh, the WWF a couple of years prior to this. And, uh, he was always entertaining over there too. And you're exactly right. After WCW's uh, run with him came to an end, he went back to uh, being a practicing attorney and I think he's down in Delray beach. So life is good for Mr. Clarence Mason. Go Clarence. If I'm ever in Delray beach and get pulled over, I'm calling you brother. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about the next match. We've got Vampiro and David Finley. It's a falls count anywhere match. I've all, I, I'm unlike you. And I actually like the presentation of the Vampiro character. I can appreciate that. It's something different and unique, and I can see where it would definitely fit in. And I'm just a, a mark for everything Finley ever did. He just looks like a legit badass because he is a legit badass. And, uh, this was not the best match ever, but, uh, it's fun enough for what it is two and a quarter stars. There is, uh, some garbage wrestling. They are going to go into the men's room. Uh, they're going to tease that Finley is going to throw Vampiro off the balcony and, um, he's going to use the nail in the coffin for the pin. Vampiro picks up the win two and a quarter stars. What'd you think? I, I, I didn't like it at all for the reasons that you, you, touched on the, the garbage kind of stuff. Look, anytime you go back, I don't care who it is, how talented someone is. You go backstage in the, that's why I never, I didn't like to overdo the backstage elements, especially, you know, the brawling, cause it never looks as good as it does in the ring. 
You know what I mean? You don't, the, the stage is quite different. The floors are slippery. You know, there's nothing to work off of. You can't bounce off a concrete wall like you can off the ropes. You know, it just, it looks, it looks like a bad bar fight on a, on a, in a good scene. It looks like a bad bar fight. I like pull aparts. You know, if there's enough people around to keep it from actually getting so physical that it looks like a bad bar fight, then I'm cool with it. Because that builds anticipation. What's going to happen when these two guys get in the ring or these two women get in the ring? But when it's just brawling as a part of a match backstage, it just looks so horseshit. I, I can't I can't describe how much I dislike it. Now, I'm like you. You know, fit to me, and it's not just because he, he's a badass, and he is, you know, very much so. Um, but he's a, he's a smart talented and classy guy love fit in a lot of ways but this match did not serve him well as far as vampiro again i've said this before it had this kind of raveness darkness to it that didn't really stand for anything it wasn't relatable to the vast majority of the people and it wasn't unique you know, at the end of this match, you'll see Sting, and I think, it, no, it's not until the uh, Sting-Luger match, but you'll see, you know, Vampiro and Sting come together. It's like, okay, well, they must be cousins. It's not, you know, they look so much alike that there was no real, you, nothing that really made one stand apart from the other in that particular scene at the end of the Sting-Luger match. But Vampiro, here's where I think they lost it with Vampiro in the, on this show. He should have never been allowed to talk. His promos backstage, he sounded like the guy I was talking to at Walmart two days ago when I was asking him what time they opened. He is he his delivery was so I don't know, below average, and I don't mean in terms of articulation or stringing a sentence together. He just sounded like a guy you were talking to at Jiffy Lube. There was nothing compelling about this that backstage dialogue. Nothing. If anything, it took away from the character. If he would have just stood there and stared at the camera, you would have created kind of an, a sense of urgency or mystery or some emotion that would have made me feel like, oh, I, I guess I can't wait till I see what happens when this guy gets in the ring. When I listened to Vampiro's promo from backstage, I can't even call it a promo. When I listened to his di- dialogue from backstage, I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go eat a hot dog. I am not watching this shit. It was horrible. And it, not a criticism of Vampiro, whoever produced it, whoever wrote it for him, whoever allowed it to happen, should have thought twice because they allowed him to kill the mystique of his own character. The Vampiro character should have had mystique and did for a while. This, he drove a stake through his own heart. Did you catch that? He drove a stake through his own heart. He being Vampiro. Wow. I'm good at this. That's why I like doing these shows with you. I could put myself over and have fun doing it. Well, you know what? The, I don't know if there's a lot on this show we'll agree about, but there is one thing that you and I do agree about, and that is the desire to get rid of credit card debt in America. Man, we have spent a lot of time talking about being smart with your money, whether you're a wrestling promoter or just a regular dude listening to this podcast right now. Here's a question for you. What if you could combine all of your credit card balances into one low fixed monthly payment? Well, now you can. And it's easy with our friends at Lightstream. 
You can get a fixed rate credit card consolidation loan from as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay. And that will allow you to pay your credit card balances off and save thousands in interest. You can get a loan from 5,000 to a hundred thousand dollars with absolutely no fees. And the application is 100% online. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. And Lightstream believes that when you have good credit, you deserve a low rate and great service. And that's exactly what they deliver. And I speak to that from experience. I've told the story so many times now, but years ago I was looking to get a car and I wanted to get the best deal possible. I know that the car dealers actually make a margin on you when you go get your financing at the dealership. So I wanted to get the best deal I could ahead of time. So I could almost negotiate like a cash buyer, get myself a great deal and not have to worry that I get the right deal on the financing. I went to lightstream.com, applied, was immediately approved, and they overnighted me a check. I got a check the very next day. It was a blank check. I got to go write a check like a cash buyer at the car dealer, and the result was I had the best car loan I've ever had. Even to this day, I've never had a rate better. I've never had easier service. It's a no-brainer. And for our listeners, if you've got credit card debt, man, have we got a special offer for you. You can get an additional interest rate discount to save even more and the only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash 83 weeks. That's lightstream.com slash 83 weeks for an additional discount. That's L I G H T S T R E A M dot com slash 83 weeks. It's subject to credit approval. The rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions may apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com forward slash 83 weeks for more information but I can't vouch for these guys enough lightstream.com forward slash 83 weeks. I wish I could give the same endorsement for the Harris brothers. They're going to win the tag titles from big Vito and Johnny, the bull It's half a star. Uh, Meltzer would write this match was back by popular demand after what a rousing success it was in England. Um, either disco or Mark Madden made mention of how one of the team members was a guy just out of the power plant, which is true. But I thought he was a mob guy working for Chuck Zito's family. It's a boring mess. What do you think of the uh, the finish here, where we see uh, the referee take a look at the big screen and all that sh- all that nonsense? I hated everything about it, you know. And, and um, I made up my mind when I watched the show back <clears throat> to prepare for this podcast. I made up my mind within the opening ten seconds that I was going to hate it. And nothing convinced me otherwise. Um, to have Jeff Jarrett and Harris Brothers coming out to NWO music. Yeah, they're they're a part of the NWO Silver here. That we had the black and white, and then we had the black and red, and then we had the Latino World Order. Well, now we've got. Uh, it was supposed to be Bret Hart sort of leading this group, the Black and Silver, and with Bret sort of on the shelf, Jeff Jarrett's the guy. And so now, yeah, the Harris boys come out to the NWO music and you're like, what the fuck is this? It, it was so, I mean, that, that's when I, I mean, nothing could, they could have had, you know, Luthez in there with, you know, Vern Gagne and Nick Bockwinkle, Kurt Henning and, you know, big four way or whatever. And, and that still wouldn't have made me like this match. I mean, it was just so bad and ill-conceived and this is what i meant earlier in this episode when we were talking about jeff and force feeding and 
you know, it's like, let's try every, let's see, we got a guitar, we got these goofy fucking shooting glasses, we got the two muscle guys, I know, let's throw some NWO music in there too, now they're NWO, which by the way, had already started, it was fucking, it had rigor mortis by this time, I mean, they, they'd taken it off, the, they disconnected it from life support, well no, they didn't, because they actually kept trying to revive a dead corpse, but it was dead, it should have been pronounced dead, it should have been buried by this point. But no, let's put Jeff Jarrett and the Harris Brothers in it. Let's have them come out to NWO music. And oh, by the way, let's make sure they don't wear any NWO shirts. Let's put a slap nuts shirt on Jeff Jarrett and have the Harris Brothers come out with basically wearing all black to NWO music. It was just, it, it was just so ill-conceived creatively. And again, it's not a criticism to the individual talent. They're but I guess it is because they should have spoke up. There, there wasn't any spying in WCW at this point. Nobody would have pushed back on them. Somebody should have raised their hand and said, well, this is fucking stupid. If we're coming out to NWO music, shouldn't should there be some representation of NWO in our merchandise? Not that you're trying to sell it, but you're trying to establish it. You're trying to do a callback to the audience. Trying at least, and I'm, I'm not supporting the fact that they did it. I think it was a dumb move to even have any of these guys associated with the NWO. But this is a perfect example, and this is more specific to Jeff than the Harris Brothers. Harris Brothers, could I could see if I was casting the original NWO idea and these guys came to me from a casting agent, I could see that. You know, I could see it. These two big, you know, lookalikes, big guys, dangerous, intimidating. I get that. Jeff Jarrett in his shooting glasses and a slap nuts t-shirt coming out to NWO music. That's like putting fucking Pee Wee Herman in an action movie. I just don't get it. What'd you think of, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the shooting glasses. I always thought they were like the Bob Vila specials. No, cause those would be clear. That, 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 uh, yellow, uh, glass is originally for, uh, I don't want to say originally, but they're used Mark's often yeah. in, you know, sporting clay shooting or skeet or trap because it, it, uh, it, it makes the target more clear, uh, in sunlight. I look to me, they're shooting glasses, but whatever. They're fucking ugly. You should not wear them to the ring. It's not a good look for anybody. Don't ever copy that. It's a bad idea. Did, um, you seem to know a lot about trapping. Have you been to a trap house before? A trap house? I've yeah. been trap shooting. I've never been inside the little house that throws the clay targets. If that's what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, we see it. Why? No, What's a trap? Huh? What is a trap house? Nothing. I was just, you know, trying to make a conversation. We see another shot of the mysterious limousine. Fit Finley cuts a backstage promo in which he claims that Vampiro has finally earned his respect, effectively settling their feud once and for all. Uh, and then we see, thank Me God. Yeah. Thank you. Then we see mean Gene interview Lex Luger and Ric Flair, Elizabeth looking on, and they're promising to destroy their upcoming opponents, Hogan and sting. Let me get a little video package. that's sort of detailing the rivalry between Terry Funk and Dustin Rhodes. And then we go back to mean Gene, who's doing an interview with Dustin Rhodes, claiming that this is going to be Funk's retirement match number 912 and he promises to end Terry Funk. It's a bull rope match. It goes nine minutes and one second. It's really, um, I don't know. Listen, I give Terry Funk a pass. I think the worst Terry Funk match is still better than a lot of others. I don't know why the guy entertains me so much. He just walks through the curtain and I'm in a good mood and here he is coming out 
doing the whole chicken routine with a chicken, like a real one. And, uh, I fucking think he's entertaining doing anything. So I enjoyed it, but I'm sure that this was probably not for everyone you included. No, I, I dug it too, because like you, I look at it in context, you know, I, when, when they announced this, you know, when they announced this match, I knew it was coming up pay-per-view uh, when I was rewatching it for, for this podcast, I, I knew what to expect. I did not expect, you know, a Dave Meltzer five-star match. I did not expect, you know, a Lucha Libre style match. I expected a Terry Funk match at this stage in Terry Funk's career. And we got it. I laughed my ass off. When he hit when he hit Dustin Rhodes in the face with a raw chicken, I almost pissed myself. I just thought it was funny, you know. When the when the, whoever it was came to the ring at the finish, dressed up like a chicken, and they had chicken sound effects in the background. I don't know. I was entertained. I thought it was funny. Can't take it seriously, but I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. You know, you need this kind of match to now, unfortunately there weren't another, there weren't enough of serious, intense, believable, compelling, you know, matches on this card that actually needed any balance because some of it was just stupid and uninteresting, but you know, in a perfect world, you've got a, a balance of the type of matches where at some point you need some comedy relief. With, with established characters, and this match could have been that. Unfortunately, everything that happened before it was goofy enough on its own that this didn't probably have the impact it could have had. But I, I dug it. I dug it. I did too. I'm a big fan of Terry Funk. I don't think he could do anything that's not entertaining if he tried. Uh, but they're going to try to entertain us in the next match. But, man, this feels a lot different. Uh, we're going to get a look at the, uh, the rivalry between sting and, and Lex Luger on a video package. These guys have been, uh, I don't know, one way or another linked to each other, their entire WCW run or so it seems. So you would think this is going to be an awesome match. It's not, it gets half a star, seven minutes and one second. It's a lumberjack match. And the idea is all the lumberjacks have casts casts on their arm every lumberjack that comes out has a cast on their arm what the fuck is this a fever dream no it's vince russo wait he's not even here that's ed ferrara <laughs> all i know is eric bischoff is saying not it uh not it vince, vampiro and jimmy hart are going to stick around uh rick flair and liz come out as flair is interfering taking some bumps Liz hits Sting in the shoulder with the bat. Uh, Hart drags Elizabeth away. Luger racks Sting. Vampiro hits Luger with the bat. Sting scores the pin uh, with the Scorpion death drop. And um, Meltzer would say this match did have one redeeming value in that Sting and Vampiro came together at the end and were treated as equals. So it should make Vampiro a player, half a star. I, I don't know that Lex Luger was capable of I don't know if sting was motivated here and I don't know that Lex Luger was capable of putting on a great match on pay-per-view here in 2000 for whatever reason, it just feels like, you know, the wrestling business sort of advanced and Lex Luger was still 1987. Uh, I think that's unfair. Lex, I, I felt the same way about Lex when I first got to WCW. I found him to be really uninteresting. Yeah. He was jacked up. He was a big guy and, you know, physical specimen. But when I came to his work in the ring, eh, eh, 
nothing really special. When Lex left, went to WWF, came back to WCW, he was highly motivated and he was very capable of having good, if not great matches, depending on who he was working with. He didn't have the flexibility. He didn't have the, uh, I would say the broad skill set of a guy like Ric Flair or uh, a Ricky Steamboat or um, an Eddie Guerrero to have a great match with almost anybody, right? But when you put him in there with the right guy, and he could ha- he could tear the house down, in my opinion. He could go. But Lex was also a little bit of a challenge to motivate. If he didn't feel it, and again, not a criticism of Lex. I love Lex Luger, by the way. Another guy that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. He's really turned his life around. Kind of an inspiration to me at this point. But um, at the time, Lex had a pretty particular view of things. And he either felt it or he didn't. And he, he wouldn't bitch. He, he wouldn't 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 be a bitch about it. He'd go out, he'd have a match, and it was the best match he could have with a certain individual under the circumstances. But he didn't feel it. But if you put him in a match with someone that he did feel that did motivate him, he could have a great match. He could be a great character. And we saw it. You know, go back and look at some of the Lexus stuff from 97, 98. It was good shit. But in this particular match, I don't think Sting was motivated. I don't think Lex was motivated. I think they were all going through the motions, and it was reflective on this pay per view. Let's uh, let's talk about the. Next how about one well, more well, well, before we go? How about how about Tank Abbott walking out out of nowhere, no rhyme, no reason, no story, no connective tissue, walks out. I'm thinking as I'm watching this back to prepare for this podcast, okay, Tank Abbott's going to get in the middle of this. At least this could be interesting. It'll be a shit show, but it could be an interesting shit show. And he goes out and knocks out Doug Dillinger and walks to the back. You go, okay. Doug's now a character. We're going to have a Doug Dillinger Tank Abbott match next week. What the fuck? Yeah, it's weird, dude. It's weird when they all brawl to the back. Uh, it's super lame, actually. But Ahmed Johnson has nobody to brawl with, so he just walks to the back. It's just fucking terrible uh next up sid vicious retains the world title beating jeff jarrett in seven minutes and 36 seconds Meltzer would say jarrett did as good a job as humanly possible with sid at this stage and it really wasn't bad early on uh eventually mark johnson runs out he's got hulk hogan limping behind him hogan saves the day beating up jarrett and the harris twins who had been interfering quite frequently and then he gives jarrett the leg drop puts sid on top for the pin after the match, Scott Steiner comes out and cracks a balsa wood guitar over Hogan's back star in a quarter. And now we're right into uh, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. I got to tell you as a wrestling fan, man, growing up half of what I was most hyped about was a Hulk Hogan entrance. And I feel like I'm sort of robbed of that in this. I know it's a minor thing, but like, I want to see the big Hulk Hogan entrance and we didn't really get to see that here. Uh, Flair's going to come out immediately. After Hogan got conked and we're going to start the match here, 14 minutes and 28 seconds, Hogan is going to sell for a couple of seconds. And then, uh, he starts making his comeback flares bleeding and Meltzer says flares work in this match was the best. It's been in a long time, but because his body is showing his age, people aren't taking him seriously. Uh, seriously. When he took bumps for sting wearing the t-shirt, he looked cool. His work is good, but he's got to wear a t-shirt now or fans can't get past the body and to miss him at first sight. I thought that was an interesting observation. Of course, uh, Dave Meltzer has always been a big Ric Flair fan. Obviously I am too, but, uh, I thought 
Flair was working hard here, but I do see what Dave is saying. And the more modern fan is going to expect a certain aesthetic look. And perhaps that's not where Rick is. Uh, the match got two and a quarter stars. You can imagine what it's going to look like here. Uh, Hogan's going to do the, the high kick on Luger just before the finish. And, um, even though this is a, a Yappa pie strap match where you're supposed to touch all the corners, they don't do that. Instead, they're going for false finishes and the announcers are trying to say, Hey, uh, I don't know why he's doing that. The only way to win is to go to all four corners. And then the referee counts the fucking pin. So afterwards, when they realize, oh shit, it was a strap match. He still drags Flair's carcass around and touches all four posts. What'd you think of the match? You know, as far as the stip goes, not great, but, uh, the actual work itself, not the worst. Let me put it to you this way. If, if I was uh, a member of the Yavapai Indian tribe living in Camp Verde, Arizona, which, by the way, I've been to and spent some time with at Montezuma's Castle and things like that because I love Native American history and culture and all that. But if I was a member of the Yavapai uh, tribe, I would sue for referring to this as a Yavapai strap match. This match was so ill-conceived and poorly executed that I think there should be damages of some way, some, some shape or form that the Avapai tribe could collect on. This is really bad. It has nothing to do. Well, I shouldn't say this. I was going to say it has nothing to do with Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, but guess who was, guess who was laying this match out? Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. So to have that strap match and to not have a, basically you're having a match that, it's just like any other match, only you're strapped together. Well, then why call it a Yavapai strap match? Why lay out the rules? Why why create the outline of the framework for a match that you're not going to follow anyway? I don't know. It's just, it was desperation. It, you know, desperation, not really thinking, not taking the time to think anything through. Um, it was indicative, I think, of the dysfunction. Creatively, business-wise, communication-wise, and every other way uh, of WCW at this point. But it was – I feel bad for both the guys. You know, I'm sure it looked good on paper for a minute until they started laying the match out and forgot that they were supposed to hit all four corners and just decided, man, we don't need to do that. So it, it didn't serve anybody well. It didn't serve the pay-per-view. It didn't serve Hulk Hogan. certainly didn't serve Ric Flair either. What did you think when you uh, watched this from home? Did you just say – Oh, fuck this, man. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's, it, it wasn't on my watch, so I wasn't beating myself up as I sometimes do or oftentimes do. Wishing, God, I wish I could go back and, you know, if I would have only known then what I know now kind of thing. And, and it's hard to escape that, you know, when your fingerprints are all over something that sucked. And my fingerprints were all over a lot of things that sucked, as well as some things that were pretty good. But, you know, on this one, I didn't have that, oh, my gosh, why did I do that feeling, which I was grateful for. But it it it, it just made me feel bad for how far WCW had fallen by March of 2000. Really, that's about the only feeling I guess I had. It's like, man, what a shame. Just a shame. I meant when you were watching it back in 2000, you know, before you came back, you see where it's going oh, on WCW. Oh. 
No, I was thinking about calling Brad Siegel and say, you know, I, you, you and I t- discussed money and we agreed, but I think I'm going to have to charge her more. Thank you. That's what I was going talking. back, going back, going back to what I said in the first part of the show. Once the audience makes up their mind, they don't like your product. It's really hard to get them to come. Imagine this. Here's another, I, I like to give you know, uh, metaphors. You open up a restaurant, you call it the nitro restaurant. You forget about the fact that there actually was one at one point in Las Vegas that sucked, but just imagine that that never happened. You open up the nitro you know, restaurant in, in downtown Huntsville and you promote the hell out of it. And it gets rave reviews and everybody from all the other restaurants, they quit going to those restaurants and they come to your restaurant and they love it for a couple of years. Can't get a bad meal. Can't get a bad review. Everything's fucking awesome. You're riding high. You go out and buy yourself a new truck. You get a nice big house on a freaking hill overlooking the valley down below, just like in a song, Billy Jack. You just, you're up there. Things are going great. And all of a sudden people start getting sick. They get food poisoning. They go home after eating in your restaurants. They have the shits for three days. It's horrible. All the bad press you get kills your business. So you figure out, okay, I'm going to hire a new cook. I'm going to hire a couple new waitresses and have them run around in bikinis. And we'll put some new pictures on the wall. You know how hard it would be to get people to come back to that restaurant? Yeah. You'd be better off starting a new restaurant. And calling it something else. And that's kind of what WCW did here. It was so bad. They had lost so much audience. And this match is a good example. Why? That had I really been as aware then as I am now, I either wouldn't have gone back because I would have known before I even tried. And this is a flaw in my own personality. I think I can do anything. I think I'm capable of anything. Truth is, I'm not. But I think I am. And oftentimes, I find out the hard way. It's just, I've been that way since I was born. And at this point, when I was talking about with Brad about coming back in March of 2000, in my heart, I believed I could find a way. Because it's just the way I'm wired. I've learned that there are some things I'm just not capable of doing. And this, if the if the sixty five year old Eric Bischoff would have been able to talk to the what year is this two thousand old was I in two thousand I don't even remember fifty forty five fifty twenty years it, however you're old now I'll take twenty off all right forty five years if the sixty five year old Eric Bischoff would be able to sit down and have a conversation with the forty five year old Eric Bischoff. After the 45-year-old Bischoff was speaking to Brad Siegel, the 65-year-old would have said, look, motherfucker, I know you think you're good. You're not good enough. Don't even attempt it because it'll, it'll, you'll, you'll be carrying that around with you for a long time. And if you're going to do it anyway, get a lot more fucking money. <laughs> that's, that's what I felt like. Well, we hope you feel like tuning in next week. We have had a lot of fun revisiting Uncensored 2000. Next week, though, we're going to talk about... You know, we oftentimes talk about the bad stuff, and I think that makes for a more fun show. Next week, maybe one of our most requested episodes ever, Sting's 1997. Uh, we know how it ends. The motherfucker needed a tan. But find out everything else. On Not my Wednesday. fault. Not my fault. He had his own tanning bed for crying out loud. Is that your move today? It's oh, this was this was your father-in-law. This was Vince Russo. This was Ed Ferrara. That's not my fault. He had a tanning. 
Can you admit just anything ever was your fault ever, just ever in life? I just got done admitting that I fucked up a lot of shit and my fingerprints were all over a lot of really bad ideas. For God's sake, what do you want me to do? Throw myself off the fucking roof under the concrete below? Well, when you did for that, crying giant, out loud, I take back. a lot of heat. I put a lot of heat on myself for shit I've made mistakes up with. Well, I, I can't wait to get Eric fired up next week. Sting, 1997. How did Eric fuck it up? Let's find out next week, <laughs> right here. <laughs> with Eric Bischoff. Hey guys, stay healthy, stay indoors, be smart. We'll get through this together and wash your fucking hands. Come on. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.